0: This court grants the defendant's
1: motion. Tonight, tears of relief, nearly 40 years in the making.
0: I'm still crying with joy, and relief right now today. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm really overwhelmed. I'm, I'm you know, I'm. i Words can't describe it.
1: Anthony Broadwater exonerated by a New York State Supreme Court judge this week at 61 years old. After spending most of his life paying for a crime he didn't commit.
0: With joy and relief, I went up to the gravesite to see my dad to tell him I I wish to God he was here.
1: Broadwater was 20 when he was charged with the rape of Alice Sebold, who went on to write bestseller, The Lovely Bones. The alleged crime happened in 1981 at a park in Syracuse, New York. Sebold described the attack in detail almost 20 years later in Lucky, a book that launched her career as an author. Her next hit, The Lovely Bones, was later adapted into an award-winning film. But all this was after Broadwater was convicted for first-degree rape and five related charges. He spent 16 years in prison. Through the years, he maintained his innocence. After serving his sentence, he quickly realized his life would never be the same.
0: The moment I stepped out, it was like impossible to get a job. These 10 fingers, I can count on my hand of the people that accept me in the household. I can't get past 10.
1: He never stops trying through appeals, motions, and even two polygraph tests to prove his innocence, but nothing worked. Until a film producer working on a screen adaptation of Siebold's book, Lucky, hired a private investigator to look into the evidence presented against Broadwater in court. They became convinced Broadwater was telling the truth.
2: Together, as we looked through the trial transcript, we realized, wow, this was a bogus
1: conviction. Earlier this month, Broadwater's new lawyers filed a motion to vacate his conviction based on now discredited scientific evidence and Siebold's identification of Broadwater as the perpetrator.
2: No one questions that Miss Siebold was sexually assaulted. She absolutely was. But she saw Mr. Broadwater on the street about five months later, had a feeling this was the person who had raped her and reported it to police.
1: She is asked to look at the individual's at some point in the lineup and she picks out number five Anthony Broadwater was number four attorneys say they learned the next part of the story from Siebold's book which they presented to the court as new evidence
2: after that the prosecutor walks in the room and begins to tell her well you picked the wrong guy but essentially don't worry your hunch is correct It actually is number four,
1: despite not picking him out of the lineup. At the trial, Seabold claimed Broadwater was the perpetrator. In a statement on Broadwater, the Onondaga County District Attorney, who supported the exoneration, said in part, it is never too late to do the right thing. A spokesperson for Scribner, the publisher of Lucky, telling NBC News neither Alice Siebold nor Scribner has any comment. Scribner has no plans to update the text of Lucky at this time. Now that you've been exonerated, what does the rest of your life look like?
0: I hope, right? I hope that I can give some inspiration to somebody and say, hey, if you're not guilty of something, do not give in. I've been yelling and screaming and and exhausting all my finances to prove my innocence It finally came.
1: Now, Broadwater says he can finally rest. Issa Gutierrez, NBC News.
3: Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, December 16, 2021. So I have been told this is our weekly book club debut session on Alice Sebold's Lucky. Now, again, we are reading this book, end of the year, end of 2021, midst of the Rona pandemic and everything else that is happening in the universe right now. We could be studying about inflation and all the rest, how to make some cryptocurrency money. We are reading Alice Sebold's Lucky. This book has been published for some time, uh, over 20 years. I first heard about it within the past few weeks. Uh, they have been talking about Anthony Broadwater recently, exonerated after he spent 16 years in greater confinement for allegedly raping a white woman after she identifies him. Five months after the alleged rape, she sees this black male on the street. He has a grin on his face. It's up. Oh, that's him. That's him. He did it. And whammo, conviction, 16 years. And apparently, I don't know if all this is going to come out in the book in terms of the details for Mr. Broadwater. Apparently, Mr. Broadwater maybe could have been released before he served 16 years unjustly. But apparently they wanted to punish him further because he had the audacity, the gumption to insist. No, 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 no. I didn't rape that white woman. I didn't rape anyone. Is it if you just say you did it, we'll go ahead and let you out. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't, didn't rape it. You just say you did it, but I didn't rape it. Recalcitrant, won't even tell the truth. Put you in greater confinement for another five years. See how you like that. I was super interested in reading this book. They were about to make it into a movie. I think you heard in the audio segment, "Lovely Bones." is the second book that Alice Siebold, white woman, wrote. She wrote uh, her memoir, Lucky, about her own so-called rape first. And then she wrote Lovely Bones, which is also about a white girl being raped and killed. Now, she wasn't the, obviously not killed and lucky, but same general premise in The Lovely Bones, which becomes a huge success. That one, uh, that book was published right after the 2001 attacks uh, and at least the way it's narrated is that the book Lovely Bones was really popular because you had lots of white people who were grieving and upset and so they gravitated to this book which I find even more macabre why would you find solace or some sort of catharsis in a book about a white child being killed and raped why would that be something that I want to gravitate to after the 9-11 September attacks of 2001 Anywho, they make it into a major motion picture, The Lovely Bones, with Mark Wahlberg. Remember him? Beat up all those black people, uh, excuse me, non-white people, so-called Asians, uh, in New England in his childhood. Total terrorist Mark Wahlberg. Uh, So they have him in the film, big success and all that. And then it takes 20 years to find out, oh, wait, dang, we wrongfully convicted Mr. Broadwater and he served all that time unjustly. And then she offers a tacky apology. Excited for many, many reasons to read this book. Also, the person who helped begin unraveling all of this deception, criminal activity, really unjustly convicting this black male, uh, the filmmaker, white filmmaker, uh, who was going to help them turn lucky into a major motion, motion, major motion picture. Now, I believe you pronounce his name Timothy Musianti. M-U-C-C-E-I, excuse me, M-U-C-C-I-A-N-T-E, Musianti, I think that's how you say it, but he was the one. He's working behind the scenes, okay, let me read the book so I know the story and all that. And he starts looking at this, having questions like, really? I don't know if I want to put my name on this. And then we get out there and find out, whoops, wrong. Incidentally, Mr. Musianti is listed on Internet Movie Database is working with Mr. Broadwater on making a documentary film on his wrongful conviction that is to be titled Unlucky, uh, which I will be super excited to see that as well. Anywho, last thing I'll say before we go ahead and get uh, started with the book. We had a number of volunteers. I mean, like more than three people who contacted Gus. Uh, hey, I'm willing to read the book. When I first I had the hard copy of the text, I looked for an audio book and I could not find it. So I thought, oh, man, we'll have to, you know, pitch in and read it ourselves. We had folks who were ready to roll. Give me the schedule. When do we start the book? Give me the book. And, you know, we'll take turns and we can get it done. I was all excited and pretty impressed, like, oh, wow, folks are really to invest their time on the holidays and everything. No sooner than I sent out all the emails and try to get folks uh, scheduled and everything so we can read a different uh, listener emails me the entire audio book and and the story he has with it he says uh, they had this on cassette and I'm thinking like do what it's almost 2021 and you had this audio book do what cassette spell cassette where did you get a cassette I haven't seen a cassette in (laughs) gee you might be talking might as well be talking about hieroglyphics or an 8 track cassette or something but anyway however he got it, uh, time capsule or whatever, flux capacitor he got the audio book, audio cassettes got it all recorded and sent me the file so we had the audiobook in its entirety and we don't have some amateur jack leg narrator we got Alice Siebel, she actually narrated the book, uh, again this book was published in 1999 so I guess they had a long time to you know, decide they wanted to do uh, an audio book or whatever but we have it. Uh, I decided it would be way better to have the white author read her own book so that we can pay attention to the inflections and where she places emotion, the dramatic pauses and all the rest of it. So without further ado, everyone's favorite subject matter. Area eight cow bell. This is Alice Siebold, white woman, her memoir. And that's how she describes it. Her memoir. Lucky. Spirit of Mr. Anthony Broadwater will be with us as we read Context of White Supremacy. Simon and Schuster Audio presents Lucky by Alice Sebold read by the author
4: In the tunnel where I was raped a tunnel that was once an underground entry to an amphitheater a place where actors burst forth from underneath the seats of a crowd a girl had been murdered and dismembered I was told the story by the police in comparison they said I was lucky But at the time, I felt I had more in common with the dead girl than I did with the large, beefy police officers or my stunned freshman-year girlfriends. The dead girl and I had been in the same low place. We had lain among the dead leaves and broken beer bottles. During the rape, my eye caught something among the leaves and glass, a pink hair tie. When I heard about the dead girl, I could imagine her pleading as I had and wondered when her hair had been pulled loose from her hair tie if that was something the man who killed her had done, or if, to save herself the pain in the moment, thinking, hoping, no doubt, she would have the luxury to reflect on the ramifications of assisting the assailant later on. She had, on his urging, undone her hair herself. I will not know this just as I will never know whether the hair tie was hers or whether it, like the leaves, made its way there naturally. I will always think of her when I think of the pink hair tie. I will think of a girl in the last moments of her life. This is what I remember. My lips were cut. I bit down on them when he grabbed me from behind and covered my mouth. He said these words, I'll kill you if you scream. I remained motionless. Do you understand? If you scream, you're dead. I nodded my head. My arms were pinned to my sides by his right arm wrapped around me, and my mouth was covered with his left. He released his hand from my mouth. I screamed, quickly, abruptly. The struggle began. He covered my mouth again. He kneed me in the back of my legs so that I would fall down. You don't get it, bitch. I'll kill you. I've got a knife. I'll kill you. He released his grip on my mouth again, and I fell, screaming on the brick path. He straddled me and kicked me in the side. I made sounds. They were nothing. They were soft footfalls. "'They urged him on. They made him righteous. "'I scrambled on the path. "'I was wearing soft-soled moccasins "'with which I tried to land wild kicks. "'Everything missed or merely grazed him. "'I had never fought before, was chosen last in gym. "'Somehow, I don't remember how, I made it back on my feet. "'I remember biting him, pushing him, I don't know what. "'Then I began to run. "'Like a giant who is all-powerful, he reached out and grabbed the end of my long brown hair. He yanked it hard and brought me down onto my knees in front of him. That was my first missed escape. The hair, the woman's long hair. You asked for it now, he said, and I began to beg. He reached around to his back pocket to draw out a knife. I struggled still, my hair coming out painfully from my skull, as I did my best to rip myself free of his grip. I lunged forward and grabbed his left leg with both arms, throwing him off balance and making him stagger. I would not know it until the police found it later in the grass, a few feet away from my broken glasses, but with that move, the knife fell from his hands and was lost. Then it was fists. Maybe he was angry at the loss of his weapon or at my disobedience. Whatever the reason, this marked the end of the preliminaries. I was on the ground on my stomach. He sat on my back. He pounded my skull into the brick. He cursed me. He turned me around and sat on my chest. I was babbling. I was begging. Here is where he wrapped his hands around my neck and began to squeeze. For a second, I lost consciousness. When I came to, I knew I was staring up into the eyes of the man who would kill me. At that moment, I signed myself over to him. I was convinced that I would not live. I could not fight anymore. He was going to do what he wanted to me. That was it. Everything slowed down. He stood up and began dragging me over the grass by my hair. I twisted and half-crawled, trying to keep up with him. Dimly, I had seen the dark entrance of the amphitheater tunnel from the path. As we neared it, and I realized it was our destination a rush of fear ran through me. I knew I would die. There was an old iron fence a few feet out from the tunnel entrance. It was three feet high and provided a narrow space through which you had to walk in order to enter the tunnel. As he dragged me, as I scrambled against the grass, I caught sight of that fence and became utterly convinced that if he brought me beyond this point, I would not survive. For a moment, as he dragged me across the ground, I clung feebly to the bottom of that iron fence, before a rough pull yanked me clean. People think a woman stops fighting when she is physically exhausted, but I was about to begin my real fight, a fight of words and lies and the brain. When people talk about climbing a mountain or riding rough water, they say they became one with it. Their bodies so attuned to it that they often, when asked to articulate how they did it, cannot fully explain. Inside the tunnel, where broken beer bottles, old leaves, and other as yet indiscriminate things littered the ground, I became one with this man. He held my life in his hand. Those who say they would rather fight to the death than be raped are fools. I would rather be raped a thousand times. You do what you have to. Stand up, he said. I did. I was shivering uncontrollably. It was cold out, and the cold combined with the fear, with the exhaustion, made me shake from head to toe. He dumped my purse and bag of books in the corner of the sealed-off tunnel. Take off your clothes. I have eight dollars in my back pocket, I said. My mother has credit cards. My sister does, too. I don't want your money, he said, and laughed. I looked at him into his eyes now, as if he was a human being, as if I could speak to him. Please don't rape me, I said. Take off your clothes. I'm a virgin, I said. He didn't believe me, repeated his command. Take off your clothes. My hands were shaking, and I couldn't control them. He pulled me forward by my belt until my body was up against his, which was up against the tunnel's back wall. Kiss me, he said and he drew my head forward and our lips met. My lips were pursed tightly together. He tugged harder on my belt, my body pressing up further against his. He grabbed my hair in his fist and balled it up. He drew my head back and looked at me. I began to cry, to plead. Please don't, I said, please. Shut up. He kissed me again, and this time he inserted his tongue in my mouth. By pleading, I had left myself open to this. Again, he pulled my head back roughly. Kiss back, he said. And I did. When he was satisfied, he stopped and tried to work the latch on my belt. It was a belt with a strange buckle, and he couldn't figure it out. To have him let go of me, for him to leave me alone, I said, Let me. I'll do it. He watched me. When I was done, he unzipped the jeans I wore. Now take off your shirt. I had a cardigan sweater on. I took that off. He reached over to help unbutton my shirt. He fumbled. I'll do it, I said again. I unbuttoned the Oxford cloth shirt and, like the cardigan, I peeled it back from my body. It was like shedding feathers or wings. Now the bra. I did. He reached out and grabbed them, my breasts, in his two hands. He plied them and squeezed them, manipulating them right down to my ribs, twisting. I hope that to say this hurt isn't necessary here. Please don't do this, please, I said. Nice white titties, he said. And the words made me give them up, lobbing off each part of my body as he claimed ownership. The mouth, the tongue, my breasts. I'm cold, I said. Lay down. On the ground, I asked, stupidly, hopelessly. I saw among the leaves and glass the grave. My body stretched out, disassembled, gagged, dead. I sat first, kind of stumbled into a seated position. He took the end of my pants and tugged. As I tried to hide my nakedness, at least I had my underpants on, he looked down at my body. I still feel that in his gaze his eyes lit up my sickly pale skin in that dark tunnel. Made it all, my flesh, suddenly horrible. Ugly, too kind a word, but the closest one. You're the worst bitch I ever done this to, he said. It was said in disgust. It was said in analysis. He saw what he had bagged and didn't like his catch. No matter, he would finish. Here, I began to combine truth with fiction, using anything to try and get him to come over to my side, to see me as pitiful, for him to see me as worse off than him. I'm a foster child, I said. I don't even know who my parents are. Please don't do this. I'm a virgin, I said. Lie down. I did. Shaking, I crawled over and lay face up against the cold ground. He pulled my underpants off me roughly and bundled them into his hand. He threw them away from me and into a corner where I lost sight of them. I watched him as he unzipped his pants and let them fall around his ankles. He lay down on top of me and started humping. I was familiar with this. This was what Steve, a boy I liked in high school, had done against my leg. Because I would not let him do what he wanted most, which was to make love to me. With Steve, I was fully dressed, and so was he. He went home frustrated, and I felt safe. My parents were upstairs the whole time. I told myself Steve loved me. He worked away on me, reaching down to work with his penis. I stared right into his eyes. I was too afraid not to. If I shut my eyes, I believed, I would disappear. To make it through, I had to be present the whole time. He called me bitch. He told me I was dry. I'm sorry, I said. I never stopped apologizing. I'm a virgin, I said. Stop looking at me, he said. Shut your eyes. Stop shaking. I can't. Stop it or you'll be sorry. I did. My focus became acute. I stared harder than ever at him. He began to knead his fists against the opening of my vagina, inserted his fingers into it three or four at a time. Something tore. I began to bleed there. I was wet now. It made him excited. He was intrigued. As he worked his whole fist up into my vagina and pumped it, I went into my brain. Waiting there were poems for me, poems I'd learned in class. Olga Cabrell had a poem I haven't found since, Lillian's Chair, and a poem called Dog Hospital by Peter Wilde. I tried, as a sort of prickly numbness took over my lower half, to recite the poems in my head. I moved my lips. Stop staring at me, he said. I'm sorry, I said. You're strong, I tried. He liked this. He started humping me again, wildly. The base of my spine was crushed into the ground. Glass cut me on my back and behind. But something still wasn't working for him. I didn't know what he was doing. He kneeled back. Raise your legs, he said. Not knowing what he meant, never having done this for a lover or read that kind of book, I raised them straight up, spread them. I did. My legs were like a plastic Barbie's, pale and flexible. But he wasn't satisfied. He put a hand on each calf and pressed them out farther than I could hold. Keep them there, he said. He tried again. He worked his fist. He grabbed my breasts. He twisted the nipples with his fingers. Lapped at them with his tongue. Tears came out of the corners of my eyes and rolled down either cheek. I was leaving now, but then I heard sounds. Out on the path, people, a group of laughing boys and girls passing by. I had passed a party on my way to the park, a party to celebrate the last day of school. I looked at him. He did not hear them. This was it. I made an abrupt scream, and, as soon as I did, he shoved his hand in my mouth. Simultaneously, I heard the laughter again. This time it was directed toward the tunnel, toward us, yells and taunts, good-time noises. We lay there, his hand locked in my mouth and pressing down hard into my throat, until the group of well-wishers left, moved on, My second chance at escape, now gone. Things weren't going the way he planned. It was taking too long. He ordered me to stand up, told me I could put on my panties. Used that word. I hated it. I thought it was over. I was trembling, but I thought he'd had enough. Blood was everywhere, and so I thought he'd done what he'd come for. Give me a blowjob, he said. He was standing now. I was on the ground, trying to search among the filth for my clothes. He kicked me, and I curled into a ball. I want a blow job. He held his dick in his hand. I don't know how, I said. What do you mean you don't know how? I've never done it before, I said. I'm a virgin. Put it in your mouth. I kneeled before him. Can I put my bra back on? I wanted my clothes. I saw his thighs before me, the way they belled out from the knee, the thick muscles and small black hairs, and his flaccid dick. He grabbed my head. Put it in your mouth and suck, he said. Like a straw, I said. Yeah, like a straw. I took it in my hand. It was small, hot, clammy. It throbbed involuntarily at my touch. He shoved my head for it and I put it in. It touched my tongue. The taste like dirty rubber or burnt hair. I sucked in hard. Not like that, he said, and brought my head away. Don't you know how to suck dick? No, I told you, I said. I've never done this before. Bitch, he said. His penis still limp, he held it with two fingers and peed on me. Just a little bit. Acrid, wet, on my nose and lips. The smell of him, the fruity, heady, nauseating smell, clung to my skin. Get back on the ground, he said, and do what I say. And I did. When he told me to close my eyes, I told him I had lost my glasses, couldn't even really see him. Talk to me, he said. I believe you. You're a virgin. I'm your first. As he worked against me, trying for more and more friction, I told him he was strong, that he was powerful, that he was a good man. He got hard enough and plunged himself inside me. He ordered me to, and I wrapped my legs around his back, and he drove me into the ground. I was locked on. All that remained unpossessed was my brain. It looked and watched and cataloged the details of it all, his face, his purpose, how best I could help him. I heard more party-goers on the path, but I was far away now. He made noises and rammed it in, rammed it and rammed it, and those on the path, those so far away, living in the world where I had lived, could not be reached by me now. Nailer, all right, someone yelled toward the tunnel. It was the kind of fraternity reveler's voice that had made me feel that, as a student at Syracuse University, I might never fit in. They passed. I was staring right into his eyes, with him. You're so strong. You're such a man. Thank you, thank you. I wanted this. And then it was over. He came and slumped into me. I lay under him, my heart beating wildly, my brain thinking of Olga Cabral, of poetry, of my mother, of anything. Then I heard his breathing, light and regular. He was snoring. I thought, escape. I shifted under him, and he woke. He looked at me, did not know who I was. Then his remorse began. I'm so sorry, he said. You're a good girl, he said. I'm so sorry. Can I get dressed? He moved aside and stood up, raised his pants, zipped them. Of course, of course, he said. I'll help you. I'd begun to let myself shake again. You're cold, he said. Here, put these on. He held my underwear out to me in the way a mother would for a child, by the sides of it. I was supposed to stand up and step in. I crawled over toward my clothes, put my bra on as I sat on the ground. Are you okay, he asked. His tone was amazing to me, concerned, but I didn't stop to think of it then. All I knew was it was better than it had been. I stood up and took my underpants from him. I put them on, almost falling for my lack of balance. I had to sit on the ground to put my pants on. I was worried about my legs. I couldn't seem to control them. He watched me. As I inched my pants up, his tone switched. You're going to have a baby, bitch, he said. What are you going to do about it? I realized this could be a reason to kill me. Any evidence. I lied to him. Please don't tell anyone, I said. I'll have an abortion. Please don't tell anyone. My mother would kill me if she knew about this. Please, I said. No one can know about this. My family would hate me. Please don't talk about this. He laughed. All right, he said. Thank you, I said. I stood now and put my shirt on. It was inside out. Can I go now, I asked. Come here, he said. Kiss me goodbye. It was a date to him. For me, it was happening all over again. I kissed him. Did I say I had free will? Do you still believe in that? He apologized again. This time, he cried. I'm so sorry, he said, you're such a good girl, a good girl, like you said. I was shocked by his tears, but by now it was just another horrible nuance I couldn't understand. So he wouldn't hurt me more, I needed to say the right thing. It's okay, I said, really. No, he said, it's not right what I did. You're a good girl. You weren't lying to me. I'm sorry for what I did. I've always hated it in movies and plays, the woman who is ripped open by violence and then asked to parcel out redemption for the rest of her life. I forgive you, I said. I said what I had to. I would die by pieces to save myself from real death. He perked up looked at me. You're a beautiful girl, he said. Can I take my purse, I asked. I was afraid to move without his permission. My books? He went back to business now. You said you had eight dollars. He took it from my jeans. It was wrapped around my license. It was a photo ID. New York State didn't have them yet, but Pennsylvania did. What is this, he asked. Is this one of the meal cards I can use at McDonald's? No, I said. I was petrified of him having my identification, leaving with anything other than what he had, all of me, except my brain and my belongings. I wanted to leave the tunnel with both of them. He looked at it a moment longer until he was convinced. He did not take my great-grandmother's sapphire ring, which had been on my hand the whole time. He was not interested in that kind of thing. He handed me my purse and the books I'd bought that afternoon with my mother. "'Which way you going?' he asked. I pointed. "'All right,' he said. "'Take care of yourself.' I promised that I would. I started walking. Back out over the ground, through the gate to which I'd clung a little over an hour before, and onto the brick path. Going farther into the park was the only way toward home. A moment later, Hey, girl, he yelled at me. I turned. I was, as I am in these pages, his. What's your name? I couldn't lie. I didn't have a name other than my own to say. Alice, I said. Nice knowing you, Alice, he yelled. See you around sometime. He ran off in the opposite direction, along the chain-link fence of the pool house. I turned. I'd done my job. I had convinced him. Now I walked. I didn't see a soul until I reached the three short stone steps that led from the park to the sidewalk. On the opposite side of the street was a frat house. I kept walking. I remained on the sidewalk close to the park. There were people out on the lawns of the frat house, a kegger party just dying out. At the place where my dorm street dead-ended into the park, I turned and started to walk downhill past another, larger dormitory. I was aware of being stared at, party-goers coming home or grinds taking in the last bit of sober air before the summer. They talked, but I wasn't there. I heard them outside of me, but like a stroke victim, I was locked inside my body. They came up to me. Some ran, but then stepped back when I didn't respond. Hey, did you see her? They said to one another. She's really fucked up. Look at the blood. I made it down the hill, past those people. I was afraid of everyone. Outside on the raised platform that surrounded Marion Dorham's front door were people who knew me, knew my face, if not my name. There were three floors in Marion, a floor of girls between two floors of boys, Outside now, it was mostly the boys. One boy opened the outer door for me to let me pass through. Another held the inner one. I was being watched. How could I not have been? At a small table near the door was the RSA, Resident Security Assistant. He was a graduate student, a small, studious Arab man. After midnight, they checked IDs of anyone trying to get in. He looked at me and then hurriedly stood. "'What has happened?' he asked. "'I don't have my ID,' I said. "'I stood before him with my face smashed in, "'cuts across my nose and lip, a tear along my cheek. "'My hair was matted with leaves. "'My clothes were inside-out and bloodied. "'My eyes were glazed. "'Are you all right?' "'I want to go to my room,' I said. "'I don't have my ID,' I repeated.' "'He waved me in. "'Promise me,' he said, "'that you will take care of yourself.' "'Boys were in the stairwell, "'some of the girls, too. "'The whole dorm was still mostly awake. "'I walked by them, silence, eyes. "'I walked down the hall "'and knocked on the door "'of my best friend Mary Alice's room. "'No one. "'I knocked on my own, "'hoping for my roommate. "'No one. "'Last, I knocked on the door "'of Linda and Diane.' two of a group of six of us who had become friends that year. At first there was no answer. Then the doorknob turned. Inside the room was dark. Linda was kneeling on her bed and holding the door open. I had woken her up. What is it, she asked. Linda, I said. I was just raped and beaten in the park. She fell back and into the darkness. She had passed out. The doors were spring-hinged, and so the door slammed shut. The RSA had cared. I turned around and walked back downstairs to his desk. He stood. I was raped in the park, I said. Will you call the police? He spoke quickly in Arabic, forgetting himself. Then, yes, oh yes, please, come. Behind him was a room with glass walls. Though meant as an office of some sort, it was never used. He led me in there and told me to sit down. Because there was no chair, I sat on top of the desk. Boys had gathered from outside and now stared in at me, pressing their faces near the glass. I don't remember how long it took. Not long, because it was university property, and the hospital was only six blocks south. The police arrived first but I have no memory of what I said to them there. Then I was on a gurney, being strapped down, then out in the hallway. There was a large crowd now, and it blocked the entrance. I saw the RSA look over at me as he was being questioned. A policeman took control. Get out of the way, he said to my curious peers. This girl's just been raped. I surfaced long enough to hear those words coming from his lips. I was that girl. The ripple effect began in the halls. The ambulance men carried me down the stairs. The doors of the ambulance were open. Inside, as we charged, sirens screaming to the hospital, I let myself collapse. I went somewhere deep inside myself, curled up and away from what was happening. They rushed me through the emergency room doors, then into an examination room. A policeman came inside as the nurse was helping me take off my clothes and change into a hospital gown. She wasn't happy to have him there, but he averted his eyes and flipped forward to a clean page in his pocket notebook. I couldn't help but think of detective shows on television. The nurse and policeman argued over me as he began to ask questions, take my clothes for evidence as she swabbed my face and back with alcohol and promised me the doctor would be there soon. I remember the nurse better than I do him. She used her body as a shield between us. As he gathered preliminary evidence, my basic account, she said things to me as she took items for the evidence kit. You must have given him a run for his money, she said. When she took the scraping from under my nails, she said, Good, you got a piece of him. The doctor arrived, a female gynecologist named Dr. Husa. She began to explain what she was going to do while the nurse shoot out the policeman. I lay on the table. She was going to inject me with dimerol in order to relax me enough for her to gather evidence. It might also make me want to pee. I was not to do that, she said, because that might disrupt the culture of my vagina and destroy the evidence the police needed. The door opened. There's someone here who wants to see you, the nurse said. Somehow, I thought it might be my mother, and I panicked. A Mary Alice. Alice? I heard Mary Alice's voice. It was soft, afraid even. She took my hand, and I squeezed it hard. Mary Alice was beautiful, a natural blonde with gorgeous green eyes, and on that day particularly, she reminded me of an angel. Dr. Husa let us talk for a moment as she prepped the area. Mary Alice, like everyone else, had been drinking heavily at a year in bash held at a nearby fraternity house. Don't say I can't sober you up, I said to her, and for the first time I cried too, letting the tears leak out as she gave me what I needed most, a small smile to acknowledge my joke. It was the first thing from my old life that I recognized on the other side. It was horribly changed and marked my friend's smile. It was not free and open, born of the silliness our smiles had been all year, but it was a comfort to me. She cried more than I did, and her face became mottled and swollen. She told me how Diane, who, like Mary Alice, was 5'10", had practically lifted up the small RSA in order to get my whereabouts out of him. He wasn't going to tell anyone but your roommate, but Nancy was up in your room, passed out. I smiled at the idea of Diane and Mary Alice lifting up the RSA, his feet doing a wild walk in the air like a Keystone cop. We're ready, Dr. Housa said. Will you stay with me? I asked Mary Alice. She did. Dr. Housa and the nurse worked together. Every so often they needed to massage my thighs, I asked them to explain everything they did. I wanted to know everything. This is different from a regular exam, Dr. Husa explained. I need to take samples in order to make up a rape kit. That's evidence so you can get this creep, the nurse said. They took pubic clippings and pubic combings and samples of blood and semen and vaginal discharge. When I would wince, Mary Alice squeezed my hand harder. The nurse tried to make conversation, asked Mary Alice what she majored in up at the school, told me I was lucky to have such a good friend, said that being beaten up like I had would make the cops listen to me more attentively. There is so much blood, I heard Husa say, worriedly, to the nurse. As they did the combings, Dr. Husa said, Ah, now, there is a hair from him. The nurse held the evidence bag open, and Dr. Husa shook the combings into it. Good, the nurse said. Alice, Dr. Husa said, we are going to let you urinate now, but then I will have to take stitches inside. The nurse helped me sit up and then scooted a bedpan under me. I urinated for such a long time that the nurse and Mary Alice made a point of it and laughed each time they thought I'd stopped. When I was done, what I saw was a bedpan full of blood, not urine. The nurse covered it quickly with paper from the examining table. You don't need to be looking at that. Mary Alice helped me lie back down. Dr. Husa had me scoot down so she could take the stitches. You'll be sore down here for a few days, maybe a week, Dr. Husa said. You shouldn't do much if you can avoid it. But I couldn't think in terms of days or weeks. I could only focus on the next minute, and believed that with each minute it would get better, that slowly all this might go away. I told the police not to call my mother. Unaware of my appearance, I believed I could hide the rape from her and from my family. My mother had panic attacks and heavy traffic. I was certain my rape would destroy her. After the vaginal exam was completed, I was wheeled into a bright white room, This room was used to store large, incredible machines with life-saving abilities, all shining with stainless steel and spotless fiberglass. Mary Alice had gone back out to the waiting room. I noticed the machines and their details, how clean and new they seemed, because it was the first time I had been alone since the wheels of my rescue were set in motion. I lay on the gurney, naked under the hospital gown, and I was cold. I was not sure why I was there, stored alongside these machines. It was a long time before anyone came. It was a nurse. I asked her if I could take a shower in the shower stall in the corner. She looked at a chart on the end of the gurney, which I hadn't known was there. I wondered what it said about me and pictured the word rape in bold red letters written diagonally across the page. I lay still and took shallow breaths. The Demerol worked hard to relax me, but, still dirty, I fought back. Every inch of my skin prickled and burned. I wanted him off of me. I wanted to shower and scrub my skin raw. The nurse told me I was waiting for the psychiatrist on call. Then she left the room. It was only 15 minutes, but with the buggy crawl of contamination spreading over me, it felt very long when a harried psychiatrist entered the room. I thought even then that this doctor needed the Valium he prescribed for me more than I did. He was exhausted. I remember telling him I knew about Valium, and so he didn't need to explain. It will make you calm, he said. My mother had been addicted to it when I was little. She lectured me and my sister on drugs, and as I grew older, I understood her fear that I would get drunk or high and lose my virginity to some fumbling boy. But in these lectures, what I always pictured was my vibrant mother diminished somehow, lessened, as if a gauze had been thrown over her sharp edges. I couldn't see Valium as the benign drug the doctor made it out to be. I told him this, but he poo-pooed it. When he left the room, I did what I knew I would do almost immediately and crumpled up the prescription to throw it into the waste bin. It felt good to do it a sort of fuck you to the idea that anyone could sweep this thing I'd suffered under the carpet. Even then, I thought I knew what could happen if I let people take care of me. I would disappear from view. I wouldn't be Alice anymore, whatever that was. A nurse came in and told me she could send in another one of my friends to help me. With the painkillers, I would need a nurse or someone else to help me keep my balance in the shower. I wanted Mary Alice, but I didn't want to be mean, so I asked for Tree, Mary Alice's roommate, and one of our group of six. I waited, and as I did, I tried to think of what I could tell my mother, some kind of story that would explain why I was so sleepy. I could not know, despite the doctor's warnings, how sore I would be in the morning, or that an elegant latticework of bruises would appear along my thighs and chest, on the undersides of my upper arms and around my neck, where, days later, at home in my bedroom, I would begin to make out the individual pressure points of his fingertips on my throat, a butterfly of the rapist's two thumbs interlocking in the center and his fingers fluttering out and around my neck. I'm going to kill you, bitch. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Each repetition punctuated by the smash of my skull against brick. Each repetition cutting off tighter and tighter the airflow to my brain. Tree's face and her gasp should have told me that I couldn't hide the truth, but she recovered herself quickly and helped me navigate over to the shower stall. She was uncomfortable around me. I was no longer like her, but was other than. I think the way I survived in the early hours after the rape was by spiraling the obsession of how not to tell my mother over and over again in my brain. Convinced it would destroy her, I ceased thinking of what had happened to me and worried about her instead. My worry for her became my life raft. I clung to it, coming in and out of consciousness on my way to the hospital during the internal stitches of the pelvic exam and while the psychiatrist gave me the prescription for the very pills that had once made my mother numb. The shower was in the corner of the room. I walked like a wobbly old lady and Tree steadied me. I was concentrating on my balance and so did not see the mirror to my right until I looked up and I was almost right in front of it. Alice, don't, Tree said. But I was fascinated, the way I had been as a child, when, in a special room with low light, I saw an exhibit at the University of Pennsylvania's Museum of Archaeology. It was nicknamed Blue Baby, and it was a mummy with the disintegrated face and body of a child who had died centuries ago. I recognized something alike in it. I was a child as this blue baby had been a child. I saw my face in the mirror. I reached my hand up to touch the marks and cuts. That was me. It was also an undeniable truth. No shower would wipe the traces of the rape away. I had no choice but to tell my mother. She was too savvy to believe any story I could now fashion. She worked for a newspaper and she took pride in the fact that it was impossible to pull the wool over her eyes. The shower was small and made of white tile. I asked Tree to turn on the water. As hot as you can, I said. I took off the hospital gown and handed it to her. I had to grip the tap and a handle on the side of the shower to stay upright. This left me unable to scrub myself. I remember telling Tree I wished I had a wire brush, but that even that wouldn't be enough. She drew the curtain, and I stood there, letting the water beat over me. Can you help me, I asked. Tree pulled the curtain back a few inches. What do you want me to do? I'm afraid I'll fall down. Can you take the soap and help wash me? She reached through the water and got the large square brick of soap. She drew it down my back nothing but the bar of soap touching me. I felt the rapist's words, worst bitch, as I would feel them almost constantly for years when I undressed in front of other people. Forget it, I said, unable to look at her. I'll do it myself. Just put the soap back. She did, then pulled the curtain closed before leaving. I sat down in the shower. I took a washcloth and lathered it up. I scrubbed hard with a rough towel, under a tap so hot my skin had already turned beet red. The last thing I did was put the towel over my face and with both hands rubbed it back and forth over and over again until the cuts in their blood turned the small white towel pink. After the hot shower, I dressed in clothes that Tree and Diane had hurriedly selected from the few clean clothes I had. They had forgotten any underwear, so I had no bra or underpants. What I did have was a pair of old jeans that I had embroidered flowers on while still in high school, and then, when the knees ripped open, had sewn intricate handmade patches on, long strips of pleated paisley and deep green velvet. My grandmother had labeled them my rebel pants. On top, I wore a thin white and red striped blouse. I left the shirt tails out hoping to hide as much as possible of the jeans. The heat of the shower and the Demerol worked together to make me groggy during the drive to the police station. I remember seeing the resident advisor, a sophomore named Cindy, outside the security door on the third floor of the police station called the Public Safety Building. I wasn't prepared to see anyone with such a bright face, such an all-American co-ed presence. Mary Alice stayed outside with Cindy as police officers led me through a security door. I met a plainclothes detective inside. He was short with longish black hair. He reminded me of Starsky from Starsky and Hutch and seemed different from the other policemen. He was nice to me, but his shift was ending. He assigned me to Sergeant Lorenz, who had not yet arrived at the station. In hindsight, I can only imagine how I appeared to them. My face was swollen, my hair wet, my clothes, the rebel pants especially, and the lack of a bra, and on top of this, the dimmer all. I made a composite for microfilm features. I worked with an officer and was frustrated because none of my rapist features seemed to be among the fifty or so noses, eyes, and lips. I gave exact descriptions, but when nothing was acceptable to me among the tiny black-and-white features I could select, the policeman decided on what was best. The composite that went out that night looked little like him. The police then took a series of pictures of me, never knowing another series had been taken earlier that night. Ken Childs, a boy I liked, had shot almost a whole roll of film, snapping candids of me in various poses throughout his apartment. Ken had a crush on me, and I knew that he was taking the pictures to show to people at home over the summer. I knew the photos would be judged. Was I pretty? Did I look smart? Would his friends be reduced to, She seems nice! or worse still, That's a nice sweater she's wearing. I had gained weight, but the jeans I wore were still too big for me, and I borrowed my mother's white Oxford cloth shirt and a tan cable cardigan sweater. The word that comes to mind here is frumpy. So, in the before photos taken by Ken Childs, I am at first posing, then giggling, then laughing openly. For all my self-consciousness, I also got lost in the giggling silliness of our crush. I balance a box of raisins on my head. I stare at the writing on the back as if it were a gripping text. I prop my feet up on the edge of his dining table. I smile, smile, smile. In the after photos the police took, I stand shocked. The word shock in this context is meant to mean I was no longer there. If you have seen police photos of crime victims, you will know that they appear either bleached or unusually dark. Mine were of the overexposed variety. There were four types of poses, face, face and neck, neck, standing with identity number. No one tells you at the time how important these photos will be. The cosmetics of rape are central to proving any case. So far, in appearance, I was two for two. I wore loose, unenticing clothes. I had clearly been beaten. Add this to my virginity, and you will begin to understand much of what matters inside the courtroom. Finally, I was allowed to leave the public safety building with Cindy, Mary Alice, and Tree. I told the officers in the station that I would return in a few hours and could be counted on to give an affidavit and look through mugshots. I wanted them to see I was serious. I wouldn't let them down. But they were working the night shift. Even when I did come back, and in their minds it was far from certain that I would, they wouldn't be there to see I'd kept my word the police drove us back to Marion dorm it was early in the morning light had begun to creep up over Thorndon Park at the top of the hill I had to tell my mother the dorm was deathly quiet Cindy went into her room at the top of the hall and Mary Alice and I agreed we would meet her there momentarily neither of us had a private phone we went to my room where I found a bra and underwear to put on under my clothes Back out in the hallway, we ran into Diane and her boyfriend, Victor. They had been up all night, waiting for me to come home. My relationship to Victor, before that morning, consisted primarily of not understanding what he had in common with Diane, whom I found loud. He was handsome and athletic, and very, very quiet around all of us. He had entered school already having chosen his major. It was something like electrical engineering, very different from poetry. Victor was black. Alice, Diane said. Other people came out of Cindy's open doorway. Girls I knew vaguely, or those I didn't know. Victor wants to hug you, Diane said. I looked at Victor. This was too much. He was not my rapist, I knew that. That was not the issue. But he was blocking my way to the last thing on earth I wanted to do, and the thing I knew I had to do make that call to my mother i don't think i can i said to victor he was black wasn't he victor asked he was trying to get me to look at him look right at him yes i'm sorry he said he was crying the tears ran slowly down the outside of his cheeks i'm so sorry i don't know whether i hugged him because i could not stand to see him crying So odd in the victor I knew, the quiet victor who studied diligently or smiled shyly at Diane, or because I was prompted further by those around us. He held me until I had to pull away, and then he let me go. He was miserable, and I cannot even now imagine what was going on inside his head. Perhaps he already knew that both relatives and strangers would say things to me like, I bet he was black, and so he wanted to give me something to counter this some experience in the same 24 hours that would make me resist placing people in categories and aiming at them, my full-on hate. It was my first hug from the man after the rape, black or white, and all I knew was that I couldn't give anything back. The arms around me, the vague threat of physical power, were all too much. By the end, Victor and I had an audience. It was something I would have to get used to. Standing close to him, but separated from the embrace, I was aware of Mary Alice and of Diane. They belonged. The others were foggy and off to the side. They were watching my life as if it were a movie. In their version of the story, where did they fit? I would find out over the years that in a few versions, I was their best friend. Knowing a victim is like knowing a celebrity, particularly when the crime is clouded and taboo. When I was doing research for this book back in Syracuse, I met a woman like this. Without recognizing me at first, only knowing I was writing a book on Alice Siebold's rape case, she hurried in from another room and told me and those assisting me that the victim in that case was my best friend. I had no idea who she was. When someone referred to me by name, she blinked and then came forward, embracing me to save face. In Cindy's room, I sat down on the bed closest to the door. Cindy, Mary Alice, and Tree were there, perhaps Diane. Cindy had shooed the others out and shut her door. It was time. I sat with the phone in my lap. My mother was only a few miles away, having driven up the day before to take me home from Syracuse. She would be up and puttering around her hotel room at the Holiday Inn. At that time she travelled with her own coffee maker because she made decaf in her room. She was coming down from as much as ten cups of coffee a day, and restaurants weren't yet in the custom of serving decaf. Before she had dropped me off at Ken Child's house the evening before, we had agreed she would come to the dorm around eight thirty AM, a late start for her, but a concession to the fact that I would have been up late saying goodbye to friends. I looked around at my girlfriends, hoping they would say, you don't look so bad, or provide me with a single and perfect story to explain the cuts and bruises on my face, the story that I hadn't been able to come up with during the night. Tree dialed the phone. When my mother picked up, Tree said, Mrs. Siebold, this is a friend of Alice's, Tree Robeck. Maybe my mother said hello. I'm going to put Alice on the phone now. She needs to speak with you. Tree handed me the phone. Mom, I started. She must not have heard what I thought was the obvious quaver in my voice. She was irritated. What is it, Alice? You know I'm due over soon. Can it wait? Mom, I need to tell you something. She heard it now. What? What is it? I said it as if I were reading a line from a script. Last night I was beaten and raped in the park. My mother said, Oh my God! and then, after a quick inhalation of breath, a startled gasp, she reeled herself in. Are you all right? Can you come get me, Mommy? I asked. She said it would be twenty minutes or so. She had to pack up and check out, but she would be there. I hung up the phone. Mary Alice suggested that we wait in her room until my mother arrived. Someone had bought bagels or donuts. In the time since our arrival back at the dorm, students had woken up. There was hurry all around me. Many students, including my friends, were meeting parents for breakfast or rushing to bus stations and airports. People would attend to me and then switch off to finish packing. I sat with my back against the cinder block dorm wall, as people came in and out and the door opened, I could hear bits of conversation. Where is she? Raped. See her face? She know him? Always weird. I had not eaten anything since the night before, since the raisins at Kin Child's house, and I could not look at the bagels or donuts without feeling what the rapist penis had last been in my mouth. I tried to stay awake. I had been up for more than twenty four hours, and far longer, what with the all-nighters that I'd pulled during finals week, but I was afraid to fall asleep before my mother got there. My girlfriends and the resident advisor, who, after all, was only 19, tried to take care of me, but I'd begun to notice that I was now on the other side of something they could not understand. I didn't understand it myself. While I waited for my mother, people began to leave. I ate a cracker, offered by Tree or Mary Alice. Friends were saying goodbye. Mary Alice wasn't leaving until later in the day. She had done instinctively what few people do in the face of a crisis. She had signed on for the whole ride. I felt I needed to dress up for my mother and for the ride home. Mary Alice had already been shocked when, at Christmas and spring break, I had insisted on putting on a skirt and suit jacket to take the bus home to Pennsylvania. Both times, Mary Alice waited on the curb outside the dorm in sweatpants and a lumpy down jacket, trash bags of laundry lined up and ready to be loaded by her parents into their car. But my parents liked to see me look nice, debated my choice of clothing many mornings during high school. I'd begun dieting at 11, and my weight and how it marred my beauty was a major topic of conversation. My father was the king of the backhanded compliment. You look just like a Russian ballerina, he said once, only too fat. My mother repeatedly said, if you weren't so beautiful in the first place, it wouldn't matter. The implication being, I guess, that I was supposed to know they thought I was beautiful. The result, of course, was that I only thought I was ugly. There was probably no better way to confirm this for me than to be raped. In high school, two boys had, in the senior class will, left me toothpicks and pigment. The toothpicks were for my Asian-looking eyes, the pigment for my white skin. I was pale, always pale, and unmuscled. My lips were big and my eyes small. The morning of the rape, my lips were cut, my eyes were swollen. I put on a green and red kilt and made sure to use the kilt pin that my mother had searched stores for after we purchased the skirt. The indecency of any wrapped skirt was something she underlined to me often, particularly when we saw a woman or girl who was unaware that the flap had blown open and we, her audience in parking lot or shopping mall, could see more leg than, as my mother said, anyone would want to. My mother believed in buying clothes big. So as I grew up, I listened to my older sister, Mary, complain about how all the clothes Mom bought us were huge. In the dressing rooms of department stores, my mother would test the size of all pants or skirts by putting her hand in the waistband. If she couldn't easily slide her hand between our underwear and whatever outfit we were trying on, then it was too tight. If my sister complained, my mother would say, Mary, I don't know why you insist on wanting pants that are so tight they leave nothing, and I mean nothing, to the imagination. We sat with our legs crossed. Our hair was neat and pulled back over the ears. We were not allowed to wear jeans more than once a week until we reached high school. We had to wear a dress to school at least once a week. No heels except pumps from Papagallo, which were primarily for church, and even then the heels did not exceed 1.5 inches. I was told whores and waitresses chewed gum, and only tiny women could wear turtlenecks and ankle straps. I knew, now that I had been raped, I should try to look good for my parents. Having gained the regulation freshman 15 meant that my skirt that day fit. I was trying to prove to them and to myself I was still who I had always been. I was beautiful, if fat. I was smart, if loud. I was good, if ruined. While I dressed, Tricia, a representative from the Rape Crisis Center, arrived. She passed out pamphlets to my friends and left stacks of them in the front hall of the dorm. If anyone had wondered what all the commotion the night before had been about, now they knew for sure. Tricia was tall and thin with light brown hair that fell about her head in thin and wispy waves. Her approach, a sort of comforting, I'm here for you stance, was not one I trusted, I had Mary Alice. My mother was coming. I did not appreciate the soft touch of the stranger, and I did not want to belong to her club. I got a two-minute warning that my mother was coming up the stairs. I wanted Tricia to shut up, didn't see how what she was saying could help me with this encounter, and I paced the room, wondering if I should go out and greet my mother in the hall. Open the door, I said to Mary Alice. I breathed deeply and stood in the middle of the room. I wanted my mother to know I was all right. Nothing could get to me. I'd been raped, but I was fine. Within seconds, I saw that my mother, who I had expected would collapse, had the kind of fresh energy that was needed to get me through the rest of that day. I'm here now, she said. Both of our chins wobbled when we were on the verge of tears, a trait we shared and hated. I told her about the police, that we had to go back. They needed a formal affidavit and there were mug books to look at. My mother spoke to Tricia and to Cindy, thanked Tree and Diane and especially Mary Alice, whom she had met previously. I watched as she took over. I let her do it, willingly, for now not questioning its toll on her. The girls helped my mother pack and bring my things out to the car. Victor helped too. I stayed in the room. The hallway had become a difficult place for me. Doorways there led into rooms where people knew about me. Before my mother and I took our leave, and as a final way to show her love, Mary Alice worked among the tangles in my hair to make a French braid. It was something she knew how to do that I didn't, something she had tons of practice with, from having groomed horses whose manes she braided for competition. It hurt while she did it. My scalp was very sore from the rapist yanking and pulling me by my hair. But with each hank of hair she braided in, I tried to gather what energy I had left. I knew before Mary Alice and my mother walked me downstairs and to the car, where Mary Alice hugged me and said goodbye, that I was going to pretend, as best as I could, that I was fine. We drove downtown to the public safety building. There was this one chore before we could go home. I looked at mug shots, but I didn't see the man who raped me. At 9 a.m., Sergeant Lorenz arrived, and the first order of business was to take my affidavit. My body was shutting down now, and I was having trouble staying awake. Lorenz led me to the interrogation room, the walls of which were covered with thick carpet. While I told my story, he sat at a desk behind an upright typewriter, typing slowly in a hunt-and-peck style. I was drifting, trying hard to remain alert, but I told him everything. It was Lorenz's job to pare it down to one page for the file, and to this effect he would at times bark angrily, that's inconsequential, just the facts. I took each reprimand for what it was, an awareness that the specificity of my rape did not matter, but only how and if it conformed to an established charge rape one, sodomy one, etc. How he twisted my breasts or shoved his fist up inside me. My virginity? Inconsequential. Through my struggle to remain conscious, I took the temperature of this man. He was tired, fatigued, did not like the paperwork side of being a member of the Syracuse PD, and taking an affidavit in a rape case was a crappy way to start his day. He was also uncomfortable around me. First, because I was a rape victim and had facts that would make anyone uncomfortable to hear, but also because I was having trouble staying awake. He squinted hard at me, sizing me up from behind his typewriter. When I said I did not know a man had to be erect in order to enter me, Lorenz looked over at me. "'Come on, Alice,' he said and smiled. "'You and I both know that isn't possible.' "'I'm sorry,' I said, chastened. "'I don't know that. I've never had sex with a man before.' He was quiet and then looked down. I'm not used to virgins in my line of work, he said. I decided to like Sergeant Lorenz and to think of him as fatherly. He was the first person to whom I had uttered the details of what had happened. I could not fathom that he might not believe me. On 8 May 81, I left my friend's house on 321 Westcott Street at approximately 12 o'clock a.m., I proceeded to walk towards my dorm at 305 Waverly Avenue by walking through Thorndon Park. At approximately 12.05 a.m., while walking on the path past the bathhouse and near the amphitheater, I heard someone walking behind me. I started to walk faster and was suddenly overtaken from behind and grabbed around the mouth. This man said, Be quiet. I'm not going to hurt you if you do what I say. He loosened up his grip on my mouth and I screamed. He then threw me on the ground and yanked my hair and said, Don't ask any questions. I could kill you right now. We were both on the ground, and he threatened me with a knife I never saw. He then began to struggle with me and told me to walk over to the area of the amphitheater. While walking, I fell down, and he became angry, grabbed my hair, and pulled me into the amphitheater. He proceeded to undress me until I was left with my bra and panties. I took off my bra and panties. He told me to lie down, which I did. He took off his pants and proceeded to have intercourse with me. After he was done, he got up and asked me to give him a blowjob. I said that I didn't know what it meant, and he said, just suck on it. He then took my head and forced my mouth on his penis. After he was done, he told me to lie down on the ground and again had intercourse with me. He fell asleep on me for a short time. He got up and helped me dress and took nine dollars from my back pocket. I was then allowed to leave and went back to Marion Dorm, where I notified the university police. I wish to state that the man I encountered in the park is a Negro, approximately 16 to 18 years of age, small and muscular, build of 150 pounds, wearing dark blue sweatshirt and dark jeans, with short Afro-style haircut. I desire prosecution in the event this individual is caught. Lorenz handed me the voluntary affidavit to sign. It was $8, not 9 I said. And what about what he did to my breasts and his fist, I asked. We fought more than that. All I saw were what I thought of as the errors he had made, the things he had left out or the words he had substituted for what had actually been said. All that doesn't matter, he said. We just need the gist of it. As soon as you sign it, you can go home. I did. I left for Pennsylvania with my mother. Early that morning, once my mother had arrived at the dorm, I'd asked her if she had to tell Dad. By that time, she already had. He was the first person she called. They debated in that phone call whether to tell my sister just then. She had one more final to take at Penn, but my father needed to tell my sister as much as my mother needed to tell him. He called her in her dorm room in Philadelphia that morning as my mother and I made our way home. Mary would take her last exam, knowing I had been raped. And so, soon after, I began to come up with my theory of primary versus secondary. It was okay for primary people, my mother and father, my sister and Mary Alice, to share the story. They needed to. It was only natural. But the people they told, the secondary people, should not tell others. In this way, I thought I could contain the news of what had happened to me. I conveniently forgot all the faces in the dorm of those who had no vested interest in keeping faith with me. I was returning home. My life was over. My life had just begun.
3: Context of white supremacy. So that is audio segment one. Alice Sebold lucky so she explains that right at the beginning boy you're lucky woman was killed in this tunnel not that long ago mhm number to dial is 720 716 7300 the code 564943 pound Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate the email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com I messed up the editing in terms of how much audio we should have stopped right at the end of chapter one and then we would have uh, given people an opportunity to comment a little bit earlier we'll do better in the future Uh, we'll get to one email and then we'll get to some of the folks who dialed in uh, Until justice at gmail email from one of our investors uh who and again, if you would like a hard copy of the book to kind of follow along, let me know. no one should purchase this book uh I, theoretically, it shouldn't be possible. I guess you can get like a used copy eBay or something of the like, but they said they had taken it off shelves and it's not shouldn't be in Amazon catalogs and things like that uh after they found out whoops, Negro was not guilty. First, first, or one of our investors who wrote in Greetings, Gus. Chapter one, number one. When he told me to close my eyes, I told him I had lost my glasses. Couldn't even really see him talk to me. Is she being deceptive towards her assailant and can actually see him clearly? I was not clear on this. The author does not seem to clarify this later in what I have read. Thus far, that would be important when we begin talking about uh, identification. Uh, Is this accurate that, you know, she she wears, you know, her glasses and that she really couldn't see him because of her stigmatism or whatever it is or this part of the deception? Something to keep in mind. Number two, a policeman took control. Get out of the way. He said to my curious peers, this girl's just been raped. This seems real tacky. Maybe it was. Uh, I think that's often something that is reported uh, that they will say, hey, we are in a sexist, patriarchal society. So and this was what, like 40 years ago. So it could have been that the officer was that gruff and, you know, move. This girl's been raped. Get out of here. You know, totally insane. Maybe. Uh, Let's see. Number three, I smiled at the idea of Diane and Mary Alice lifting up the RSA. On his feet, off his feet. Excuse me, doing a wild walk in the air like a Keystone Cop. Arab man suggests that the RSA is a non-white victim. That's what I thought too. This could be a racist joke. I was thinking the same thing. These white women coming and beating up, being physical with this uh, non-white male. Like it would not have been the same thing if the RA was a female, particularly a white woman, and then it was anybody coming to lift her up off the. Window tell us give us that information right now number four and on top of this the Demerol I made a composite from microfilm features I worked with an officer and was frustrated because none of my rapists features seemed to be among the fifty or so noses eyes and lips I gave exact descriptions but when nothing was acceptable to me among the tiny black and white features I could select the policeman decided on what was best. The composite that went out that night looked little like him. a complete travesty that's what he wrote in now this again, keep that in mind from we get because they do go over some of the trial details uh in all of this, so is this going to be this was published in nineteen ninety nine They don't find out all this is a farce until way later. um, so is this hey the police just did a poor job and the identification did she really not see him so she couldn't do a good job herself at identification A little bit of both racism any nigger will do number five Victor not understanding what he had in common with Diane whom I found loud Victor was black Victor wants to hug you Diane said I'm sorry he said he was crying this was an interesting passage I'll say nothing in common seems like a code for the fact that this is a tragic arrangement I was thinking that anyway but yeah Victor seems like a confused white identified victim seeking white validation I'm one of the good Negroes I mean Syracuse University is a private institution unless I'm informed I was accepted at Syracuse not bragging still a victim uh but it's private so yeah you would probably be very white identified they're not going to have too many folks up there who are being rowdy and militant and angry Uh, although jim brown did graduate from syracuse anywho uh moving on to chapter two he writes number one in high school two boys had in the senior class will left me toothpicks and pigment the toothpicks were for my Asian looking eyes the pigment for my white skin another example of a racist joke absolutely Um. <clears throat> I thought yeah I have to come back to the other component of that as well but toothpicks really you know how they, they say you, your eyes are so slanted that you have to put the toothpicks to prop your eyelids open so that you can see <laughs> all the racist jokes yeah yeah uh we didn't get to rest so we have to come back and get the rest of chapter two once we finish the rest of the audio. The email is untiljustice at gmail dot com. We will get to the phone lines uh for folks who have commentary. Star 61. Uh I don't know what people made of virginity, how many times that was said, but if folks have thoughts on that, feel free. Uh we'll check and see folks who have a hand up. Uh first few people with a hand up line should be open. Proceed. Might be hurt. Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. All right, greetings, Gus, and greetings to
5: all the callers and listeners. Uh, I don't have the book, so Gus, if you have the electronic copy, if you can forward it to me, that'll be great. I refuse to pay for the book or even look for this book <laughs> since it's uh, a book about a, a huge lie that got a non-white black male in, in prison for. And an un unnecessary period of time so but um as i'm listening to it um you know first thing first things first it's you know uh, i didn't realize that this was published by Simon and Schuster now for people who uh remember a couple of years ago uh or not too long ago there was a movie called Can You Forgive Me uh and it was based off the story of Lee Israel uh, another lying white woman who basically forged a bunch of letters from dead authors. So, <laughs> seems like Scheinman and Schuster has made money uh, publishing uh, publishing off of uh, lying white women. Uh, you know, in their in their uh, history. So, thought that was pretty interesting. Um, listening to the audio and then also too, this is the. Uh, I'm assuming. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. This is the author who is narrating this on the on the audio. So it's interesting listening to her because of the fact that, um, you know, when she describes her rape, you know, I, I just, I just, it just feels like there is like no emotion there. I, I you know. I don't know what it what it's you know what it's like to be raped or you know uh, I've heard you know people describe their rape and the trauma uh, that that comes out of it but it just it just seems like she's reading this like a fictional story and I, I, I don't know maybe maybe I might be missing something but that's the first uh, that's the first uh, metaphor of red light that I kind of thought about. Also, too, you know, the 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 actual, you know, the the events that covered this rape, you know, was just so questionable. Like, does a rapist ask the victim to take their clothes off? Like, you know, it, it was almost like a, you know, I, I was surprised the rapist didn't say, "Please take your clothes off." And, and it just the the story just basically kind of sounds like that. Um. A rapist asking a victim to kiss him, um, you know and then and then what was even more interesting is the rapist's remorse at the scene of the crime. Now, it could be plausible that a rapist could have remorse like you know after they've left the scene and they thought about it, but she's having a conversation with this guy, and i'm I'm just you know it's just puzzling, like I said, I don't know I mean. I've never been raped. Uh, I have talked to people who have been raped and, you know, uh, they never said that they had a conversation with their rapist during the time of the rape, but you know, maybe, maybe I might be wrong, but, um, that, that yeah, it's, I don't know. It's already starting off kind of questionable, uh, in this sense, but, uh, that's all I have. of in my line.
3: Let's see their old, uh, patriarchal Henry in Chicago before we get to uh, some of the other folks who dialed in to your comment about, you know, this is kind of a red flag and you know, a a, a rapist at the scene of the crime is not going to have remorse and is not going to be, Oh, come on and give me a kiss and take off your clothes and you know, all the rest of it. Um, She addresses specifically in terms of her, taking off her pain, him saying, you know, I'll take off my clothes for you and that sort of thing. And she says, well, I assisted my assailant. You know, some of you all will look at that and say, hey, that that means that you you were not raped or that somehow minimizes uh, what happened. Uh, you don't see any way that someone in this sort of situation could just try and do whatever they could. Even Stockholm syndrome to just try to do whatever they could to navigate that sort of situation to get out of it safely, especially feeling young and vulnerable. You don't you don't think that could. Reasonably happen.
5: Well, I mean, you know, now that we know that this book is a lie, <laughs> you know, it, it, it could have been, you know, it could have been plausible if, uh, if you know, if if we were still in the state that you know, you know, she might have been telling the truth. But um, now that we, now that everything is kind of like you know, seen or uncovered um the tone of it is is is, is it, it just comes out more i you know, like i said i've never read this book but now that i now that we all know that this this is a big lie it's kind of like comes out even more maybe before i probably would have asked that you know asked the question about you know maybe she just did that you know so she can stay alive but um Yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me now, maybe because of the fact that we know that it's a lie right now.
3: Okie dokie. Much obliged, sir. Check your email. Uh, I did want to make sure I point out for the record, um, the only thing that is in dispute, I mean, only the only thing thus far that folks are signing off on is that the identification of Mr. Broadwater was inaccurate uh... the actual rape they said oh yeah she was actually, she was raped miss Seabold, she was raped they haven't said that she made that up or anything else just the mister broadwater didn't do it so we'll keep all of that in mind they have not said that this the entirety of this is wrong just we got the wrong person uh... let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share Line should be open. Hello. Uh, Irie in Louisiana. Yes, ma'am.
6: Good evening. Good evening, Gus. Okay. I'm trying to... I, I know I'm being objective. So when I called in and started to listen, I just listened to it as though I had no, um, no, no idea. Is currently, you know, happening in regard to the story, the the innocent black man, victim of racism. I just wanted to listen to her details. Once the details started about the actual assault, I had um, some duration issues, kind of like what the caller before was saying, but more so for me with the time. I'm like, this is taking a lot of time. Okay, so I remember she's like, we were one place, and and uh, he took this off and that off, and then they moved, if I'm not mistaken, someplace else. So now they're they they're not they're 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 traveling, and then the assault is happening, and he's taking his, as they say, cliche sweet time with her, that between that happening and all the other people walking by or being in proximity, they would have got caught. They would have got seen, like, during the act, I would think. Um, Some mental notes I made. Twice she spoke of either intending to be dishonest or being dishonest. So she intended to be dishonest with her mother, and she was thinking of... uh, you know, just looking for things she could uh, tell her mother instead of, you know, coming out about the assault. But then she also admitted that she was dishonest with the rapist. And in her dishonesty with the rapist, it honestly came across to me like what I I had to read Lolita in in high school. And Lolita, the man, the, the racist suspect, Pervert refers to Lolita as a nymphette. And so she comes across like the character Lolita, very uh, a passive resistance, um, but still very uh, compliant. And that does something for her in the telling. It, it, it makes her, she's trying to sound innocent with it, but at the same time, it sounds, it does sound participatory, which is also what happened with Lolita. Lolita part- participated in her uh, sexual abuse as well, right? And then she relied twice on um, making herself, um, or, or, or verifying a sense of immaturity, or should I say, innocence as well. So, she repeatedly mentioned that the man said, you're a good girl, you're a good girl. I don't know if I believe he said that. I don't. Because she just said it so many times, like, you're a good girl, you're a good girl. Um, And that seems like self-soothing, honestly. Um, And then she called her mom, decided to be honest and tell her, and then she goes, can you come and get me, mommy? So she made herself sound innocent and, and, you know, again, puerile then. But then on the flip side, she's rude to her friends. She acts like a grown A asterisk asterisk woman with them, right? Um, can you get the bar of soap and wipe my back? Okay, do it like this. Oh, don't worry about it. I got it. Just just close the curtain. Um, Open the door. My mom was coming in. And some of the stuff, like, and then as far as Victor, if he's a real person, yes, he's a victim of race racism, but at the same time, I, I don't know if I buy that either. The whole, oh, he wants to hug you, because that subconsciously to these white feminists is going to come across as, here are these black men trying to put their hands on her. One raped her, and now the other one wants to hug her after she's been raped and raped and she he knows this what's wrong with them i could just hear that i could just hear it so it makes him sound like a dipstick and makes her sound like she's being victimized again and there was something else i was going to say but that that really made me angry thinking about that so i'll mute my line for now thank you
3: (laughs) much obliged lolita is that is that school reading they should put that on the band list with the hate you give my goodness Uh, much obliged um, Irie in Louisiana so we got some folks who are a little skeptical she's noting the timing and they did move around they started uh, in a more open area and then they moved to I guess like this tunnel uh, area so she's talking about the timing of this all that seems a little suspicious Uh, other folks who dialed in that we have missed totally proceed Greetings,
7: everyone. I you. Thank you, sir. Uh, I'm probably going to uh, say some things that are not going to be very popular, uh, but nevertheless, they, they have been uh, a part of uh, my codification when it comes to uh, white people and quote unquote sexual crimes yes I know such a thing takes place this is irregardless of what I know about you know the the truth that she uh, uh, lied about uh, this black male Uh, but nevertheless uh, with the history of global white supremacy And the use of the eight-people activity to be put into a weapon, sex, especially with white females. I myself do not give white females the benefit of the doubt when they state the term that is called rape. Uh, as I would factor most people that I think that's on the line would know the history, uh, not only a individual victim or victims were harmed even to death, whole towns were put to the torch because of a lying white female. Uh, We know about uh, the Cosby trial and the different uh, accusations that went on. Even what is determined as rape is put into question through the mouth of a white woman. So I even had a white female when I was at work (laughs) mention to me that she was raped by a black male. (laughs) <laughs> I think she made a mistake by doing that, uh because I did not react uh to her in the way that I think she figured that I would as far as her story was concerned uh but nevertheless that's that's essentially what I have to say about the uh the first reading, thank you.
3: much obliged retired firefighter just for making sure uh, listeners aren't confused uh, For in terms of what has been reported at this point no one has reported that Alice Siebold lied like there was a deliberate effort to pick Anthony Broadwater when they know he didn't do it they just said that this was a oops got the wrong person but we'll analyze as we go. Uh, much obliged for your patience. Mo in Dallas. Um, yes. Can I be heard? Yes, sir.
0: Uh, thank you. Uh, greetings, Gus. Um, greetings, listeners and callers. Uh, again, thank you for the program. This is a very um, interesting read. Um, uh, and... and it is one that I, I I actually had to walk um away from to be honest. Uh simply because I I I'm familiar with uh well I've been in 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 situations to, with uh to where I've met and conversed with, with ladies who 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 actually suffered, you know, who were victimized in this capacity. Um and it's not an easy thing to talk about. Um, or in, or an easy thing to listen to um, as a man, you know. I've never been raped or or harmed anyone, so to hear it, um, uh, you know, in person from a person who has happened to is very is a very difficult thing to deal with. Um, it's mentally draining on some levels. Um, and with that being said, when the, when this reading started, the first question I, I wrote down was: Does she sound like she is reading her own um, account or someone else's? I uh, I felt like uh, this was um, <clears throat> in my opinion this is all my opinion um, I felt like it, it sounded as if someone handed her handed her a stack of papers and said start reading um um uh, I did uh write a quote uh, uh she said a real fight a fight of words and lies in the brain um uh that is a uh, real fight um, uh, you know the fight to uh, to shape a narrative, um, and it is a longer fight than an actual physical altercation. I think that's what happened uh, uh, with certain points in this in this uh, account of what occurred. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, well, it, uh, my fifth my fifth statement um, here, I began to combine truth with fiction. I wrote that one down and a lot further than I expected to write that particular quote down, but I heard it, so I wrote it down. I also don't have a copy of the book, so I can't tell when it happened. I can tell I called on the line at 7.06, and I was on the phone for 17 uh, minutes and 10 seconds when I heard that. (laughs) So I don't know at what point of the reading that is, but about 23 minutes into it, I heard that. And I was like, seriously, into the program. To the program. So, um, she I, I did note uh that she had a full-on uh conversation um with the uh with the with the would-be assailant um which which is 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 not uh um, it's not impossible, but it is kind of the conver- the the dialogue the 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 act the fact that this is a conversation like a negotiation. Yeah, no, so, so, um, I've talked to women who have been accosted and they'll say, like, I will do what he says as long as he don't hit me. Like, like, there are women that, that, uh, or I, I won't say that they'll do this, but there's another quote she says, I will suffer a thousand rapes before I get murdered. Like, some women do, uh, and that I've met have thought like that. I will do what he says as long as I get to leave. So I'm not saying that that is not, uh, you know, uh, a reasonable uh, path of thought when you are being victimized like this, but just the, like, if he has committed to this crime, like, I can't imagine him threatening you one moment and then, like, really trying to negotiate your shirt off. Um, I I, I just, that is my personal like take on that um, that particular scenario. It just it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. Um, uh, like what would uh, unless unless of course and this is this is another thing. Unless she knew this person, but if you knew this person, how could you misidentify this person? So is that that my 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 brain is. Uh, got kind of lost on there. Um, uh, Mary Alice's smile reminded her of her old life. Uh, I was unclear on what life she was talking about. Um, And then I guess I kind of uh, answered my question. I I assumed it was the life before this situation, Um, which I think, uh, I'll just, um, did she claim that she returned to the police station um after she left uh when they were at the police station during the night shift and when she returned, whenever the police station was closed. I think that's what she said. She said she was at the police station. She made it clear that it was night shift and, and all these things. And she said that she came back to give them further information, but they weren't there. Like that was very unclear. Did she come on the day that the entire station was closed with a particular officers, not, at the station that she wanted to talk to like were they shunning her she sounded like she was being mistreated and and pushed through the system like they weren't taking the rape seriously which is very not it doesn't make sense when we understand what happens when white women claim to be touched or raped i saw a tiktok video with this young black Man, rubbed this lady's hair. I don't agree with touching anybody. Period. Give my six feet, Rona. But he touched this lady's hair in the store, and the first thing she hollered was rape.
5: He was recording
0: her, like it's itch- rape. It was really so. Like is she saying she was the one lady that didn't get a city burnt down, or, or I'm sorry, I meet mean, my line.
3: The one lady that didn't get a city burned down. My goodness. Woof! Much obliged. Mo in Dallas. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks who have commentary to share. Did we miss anyone? Nabbed everybody. We didn't miss anyone who a hand up. Hello, Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. We can hear you.
8: Yes, I'm um, um, just going to read some of my notes. Um, this is Dread One Thirty Eight. I was uh, one of the volunteers to read. Um, I wonder if the lurid description of sexual violence made his book so appealing. The great fantasy role playing some whites transmit to pornographic media, especially with a black male and white woman. And then um, after the attack, when she's told she's going to have a baby. The, the, the assaulter, something that struck stuck out to me. She hadn't explicitly described her as, as a black male yet. There you were know, some clues where she described the dirty rubber and burnt hair somehow pleaded him to keep this pagan secret that apparently would hate her, gave the indication that the attack was a black male. And I guess, you know, finally with the passage where she spoke of uh, Victor, Victor, the male and the tragic mason, tragic arrangement is fascinating fascinating me. not understanding what she had in common with diane not wanting to get hugged by this man, only to give him a hug once he began to cry i'll meet my line
3: much obliged oh this was one of our volunteers as he said he was going to read i said man in my opinion i'm so thankful you and the others are willing to to volunteer but Man, to hear the author read. Uh, do you have any thoughts just on hearing, you know, in terms of her tone, uh, where where she put emphasis, emotion, or lack thereof, uh, on what you heard from her narration?
8: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, funny that she um, talked about that because it was curious. Because when I, like I said, listen to my playback, it was very some person is cold and I thought I was being a little bit too cold with it. But then this and hers is very similar to the way I was kind of reading it. Strange. It's strange to me. It's strange.
3: Hmm. Yeah, Yeah. 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 That's what I said. I'd much rather have her read it as that way that won't be influencing, you know, how we are processing the information. We can hear it all directly from her words, her mouth, her, her, uh, vocal cords all of that how we process this story uh, much obliged dread 138 uh, I'm gonna get through my notes for the quick and then we can get to the second portion of the audio We're still in chapter 2 I uh, thought y'all great points Um I'll just say let's see from the first portion she references the <clears throat> black male rapist she she says he's like a giant who is all-powerful he reached out and grabbed the end of my long brown hair he yanked it hard and brought me down onto my knees in front of him that was my first missed escape the hair the woman's long hair and I felt that one for sure the white woman I don't think black females are generally referenced for having long hair uh, but that passage kind of stood out to me. One, like I said, this giant, beastly negro uh, who's coming out to grab this petite womanly, and then the very essence of white femininity. Her long, she's not blonde, but her long brown hair is what fails her escape. Uh, she says, I think I forgot who it was. It might have been Moe and Dallas. Uh, he says uh, she says I was about to begin my real fight a fight of words and lies and the brain I thought that was important Sebold writes fiction this book was written in 1999 The Lovely Bones which is also about a white female being raped was published uh, the book in 2001 Uh, and that is fiction although she says it's based on a so-called true story but that is fiction a novel um I just I found that interesting uh, for someone to just say that so explicitly are you lying to the rapist? Are you lying to yourself? Are you lying to us? Uh, she says I looked at him into his eyes now as if he was a human being as if I could speak to him again the beast black rapist the dehumanization happens all the time and this is for sure one where no one oh yeah he's not even a human what type of savage goes out and rapes a virgin college student a virgin white woman nothing but a savage you're not even a human being typical black male of course not the man Dr. Tommy Curry Uh, let's see I am interested in counting how many times the word virgin is in this book. We heard it so many times and that's such a big part of white supremacy race. Oh my gosh. Are you serious? Are you serious? I am stunned. (laughs) Would anybody like to take a wager on how many times the word virgin is in this book? Anybody. I'll give... uh, Anybody wanna take a wager? Any guesses? Any guesses?
0: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um excuse my dog. Um I would I, I think I've heard it at least twelve times. Um I haven't been counting. I'll start to count um Isabel Wilkinson.
3: Um uh, shout out to her.
0: Uh, but I would like to add that.
3: Um, well, wait a minute, we we just sticking to one thing. So, so do you? Okay. Did you have a
0: count well, sorry, for virginity? Uh, oh, oh, uh, Well, a full count, maybe. If I heard it twelve times in the first reading, um, um, I would. How many chapters? Not sure. Well, I, I would, I would, I would comfortably say eighty. I, I'll give it eighty, um, but that's all. I need my line
3: okay we'll see if we have time for your other thoughts any other guesses for virginity how many times we think it's in the book if not that's fine too you took too long Uh, he said 80 I cannot believe like any other time I mean for any other book 80 times is be what kind of goofball is this mowing Dallas what do you mean 80 times the word virginity or one of its derivatives, virginity, virgin or whatever, is in this book 46 times. We've had a book club for over a decade. We've never read a book where the word virginity is in the book 46 times that we've read other books that dealt with sex, rape, the delectable Negro, all of it. No book has had virginity in it this much. In fact, you would be hard pressed to read it except for Case to find a word repeated that many times in a book. Most said he heard it 12 times already now. I didn't count how many times, but I heard it enough to say, wait a minute. Red flag. <laughs> like that also is a major trope of white supremacy racism, white women with long hair, generally blonde and being pure virgin mare. I mean, that's almost like biblical. I'm a virgin, I'm pure, I'm untouched. I'm a virgin, I'm pure. Did you know I'm a virgin? I'm pure, I'm untouched. Some I mean, just all of that, and then with the contrast to the beastly Negro, like <laughs> one time it does not need to be repeated over and over and over and over and over. Uh, let's see. Uh, 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 uh. Says okay, and then we have the contrast. Uh nice white titties he said and the words made me give them up lobbing off each part of my body as he claimed ownership the mouth the tongue my breast the fact that the emphasis on her being white and that one even gave me pause as well so is is the rapist like you got this in quotes really he would come and rape you and be that explicit about wanting to rape a white woman hmm Uh, let's see. Oh, and it's so many times Dr. Francis Cresswell's, and she says, I sat, Burris kind of stumbled into a seated position. He took the end of my pants and tugged as I tried to hide my nakedness. Welsing moment. At least I had my underpants on. He looked down at my body. I still feel that in that gaze, his eyes lit up my sickly pale skin in that dark tunnel made it all my flesh suddenly horrible ugly too kind a of word, but the closest one now that I mean wow one of the most important passages that we read uh, for folks who remember Mark Twain and his passage complexion this is her commentary about her body saying that her skin was sickly and pale this is after she's already said or I think she says it next that in high school uh, they gave her pigment because she was so sickly pale consistent isn't that Dr. Francis Cresswelsing and then how is it that you have a white woman who is consistently calling attention to her sickly pale no pigment melanin deficient complexion how is that happening at the same time that she's being raped by a black beast who is prizing her white breasts, I think dread one eighty seven he or excuse me one thirty eight he said that <clears throat> it seems this book might be a part of that tawdry uh interracial pornography uh that people might enjoy reading because it's so graphic and it's right at the beginning, and then that's gonna be the focus of the book maybe uh let's see here she says again with a lie. she says here I began to combine truth with fiction using anything to try to get to try and get him to come over to my side to see me as pitiful for him to see me as worse off than him deliberately being mischievous then we get more virgin 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 Uh, he started humping me wildly again some savage (laughs) ways (sighs) Let's see. Mm. My legs were like a plastic Barbies. Pale, inflexible Barbie is just understood to be white uh, for so many decades. That's been the case. I guess they do have the non-white ones now, but it's still pretty much understood that this is a white woman. Uh, Virgin, virgin, virgin. she calls attention to the fact that she uh, kissed him. She took off her clothes and said, so, you know, does that make me complicit in all of this? Do I have free will? I could totally see how someone in a vulnerable position may do all of these things. If they think it's going to get them to safety, that makes sense. However, I have a lot of other questions about this. Like that is, you can, you know, take that off the list entirely. There are many other things that I would question about all of this. Um, she says I've always hated it in movies and plays interestingly because this was about to be made into a movie the woman who is ripped open by violence and then asked to parcel out redemption for the rest of her life I am totally unaware and I mean completely unaware of any movie where a black person particularly a black male is able to distribute violence to a white woman and she parcels out redemption if anybody can think of such a book movie please share I don't know of that at all. Frankly, if you really want to pull me on it, like I couldn't even really think of one if you talked about a white man getting all this redemption and forgiveness. Like they make lots of movies where Angelina Jolie and uh, Jennifer Lawrence uh, and the rest of these folks uh, can go out. Sandra Bullock and the rest of them can go out and get all kinds of vengeance if a white man has you know done them wrong. Julia Roberts, all the rest of them. Let's see. Speaking of white women, Mary Alice was beautiful, a natural blonde. There it is with gorgeous green eyes. And on that day, particularly, she reminded me of an angel. See, that's what I said that this all. It sounds like fictional, like we got all this virginity, virginity, pure white women with long hair, pure blonde, white women with long hair, and then pure blonde, beautiful, natural white women who remind you of an angel. Religion of white supremacy. These are the type of things to me that stick out way more than you know. You took your pants off or did whatever. That stick out like, eh, This sounds like something very made up. Um. Ooh. Now, I was researching this before we got started. There, she said, as they did the Comings, Doctor Husser said ah, now there is a hair from him. The nurse held the evidence bag open and Dr. Hoosa shook the combings in. That is a big one. Star that uh, I had totally forgotten years ago when the uh, FBI released that report talking about how they had all these scientific findings where they had found hair fibers and things and they had went and did their analysis in their scientific lab with their white lab coats and they went and said, oh yeah, this person didn't. And they said it was like 95% of the time if it was a case and they had fibers or some sort of scientific material evidence it was for the prosecution and oh yeah guilty he did it and we got the evidence that shows he did it and they had to come out and say oops our bad. We were lying. We were just making it up. You can't be that certain with statistics. And we came in and said all this and this is not. Remember that? And they said it was hundreds of cases where, whoops, we came in and said all this and we got the evidence and we know because we're experts and scientists. And then they had to say, nope, not even the case at all. This is one of those cases. There were hundreds. This is one. So keep that in mind as we roll too. Uh, let's speaking of hair, they come right back. This is in the word guide i don 't have my word guide with me, Neely Fuller Jr. Uh, she says uh, her mom was way too savvy to believe any story I could now fashion. She worked for a newspaper and she's going to lie to her mom, Jesus. Uh, she worked for a newspaper and she took pride in the fact that it was impossible to pull the wool over her eyes. That phrase that metaphor exactly is in the word guys woolly haired negroes who don't know what 's going on. Uh, let's see. Too busy raping. Uh, oh, man. We'll have to get some to next. Let me see. All American co ed presence. White women again. She says that. Lots more virginity. Uh, I, I got to say something about the Victor scene, him being a black male. I could not imagine if she had been, if anyone was raped by a white man or white woman. Other. White men or women having to feel some sort of complicity or shame for all white men because a white man did the rape or all white women having to feel shame or some sort of culpability because all white women women are somehow implicated in this crime. That is foolishness. That is white supremacy, racism, and it only only happens with black people where we are somehow culpable in this example of all of us are no count wild beasts I totally agree with the uh, white validation even this could be I mean I could totally see this happening I've seen this sort of thing but even this could be uh, made up to show that she's not a racist and she was concerned about him she gave old Victor a hug even though he could have been the rapist for all we know Uh, he's here weeping like this is so bad and you know let's see Uh, 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 uh 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 last thing I'll get in then we get to second audio she says uh, I guess this is her police statement she says I wish to state that the male I encountered in the park is a Negro approximately 16 to 18 years of age I even had to pause right there like a 16 year old black male we think did all of this okay Uh, small and muscular build of 150 pounds wearing a dark blue sweatshirt and dark jeans what gave me pause was the phrasing I wish to state that the man I encountered in the park like I wish for a lot of things like that's just curious phrasing she's not saying you know the suspect my rapist was a black male I wish to state that's just it's interesting phrasing and I'll hush there Uh, folks can continue counting how many times we continue to hear the term virgin as we proceed, uh, we will shuffle off to Chapter 2. I know Mo and Dallas had other comments. I'm sure other people as well. Take notes. Uh, we'll have ample time to share. Uh, this is Alice Siebold Lucky, the Wrongful Prosecution Conviction, 16 Years, Mr. Anthony Broadwater, Audio Segment 2.
4: Paoli, Pennsylvania is an actual town. It has a center and a train line named after it, the Paoli Local. It was where I told people I was from. I wasn't. I was from Malvern, or at least that was my mailing address. But actually, I was from Fraser. I grew up in an amorphous valley of converted farmland that had been divided into treeless lots and sold off to developers. Our development, Spring Mill Farms, was one of the first to have been built in the area. For many years, it was as if the 15 or so original houses had landed in the midst of an ancient site of a meteor crash. There was nothing, save the equally new and treeless high school, for miles around. New families like mine moved into the two-story houses and bought sod, or small whirring seed spreaders, that the fathers walked back and forth across the dirt lots, as if they were the most disciplined of pets. Heartsick at her inability to grow anything resembling the lawns and magazines, my mother opened her arms wide to the advent of crabgrass. To hell with it, she said. At least it's green. The houses came in two options, garage sticking out in front, garage tucked to the side. There were two or three color options for the shingles and shutters. It was, to my teenage mind, a wasteland that involved endless trimming, mowing, planting, weeding, and keeping up with the neighbors on either side. We even had a white picket fence. I knew every picket, as it was my sisters and my job to crawl around on our hands and knees and use manual clippers on the grass that the mower couldn't reach. Eventually, other developments cropped up around us. Only the original residents of Spring Mill Farms could distinguish where our development ended and the others began. It was back to this collapsing Chinese fan of suburbia that I went after I was raped. The old mill for which my neighborhood was named had not yet been restored when I was a teenager, and the mill owner's house across the street was one of the few old homes in the area. Someone had torched it, and the big white house now had black holes for windows and a green wooden railing that was charred and falling in in places. Driving by with my mother, as I did every time we went out of the development, I was fascinated by it. Its age, the overgrown weeds and grass, and the marks of the fire. How the flames had licked out the windows and left black ash scars above their rims like crowns. Fires are something that seemed part of my childhood, and they beckoned to me that there was another side to life I hadn't seen. Fires were horrible, no doubt, but what I became obsessed with was how they seemed, inevitably, to mark a change. A girl I had known down the block, whose house was struck by lightning, moved. I never saw her again. And there was an aura of evil and mystery around the burning of the mill house. "'that gave flight to my imagination every time I passed. "'When I was five, I walked into a house "'near the old Zook graveyard out on Flat Road. "'I was with my father and grandmother. "'The house had been ravaged by fire "'and was set off far from the road. "'I was frightened, but my father was intrigued. "'He thought that he might scavenge things inside "'that would add to the box-like home "'he and my mother had just moved into. "'My grandmother agreed.' In the front yard some distance from the house was a half-charred Raggedy Andy doll. I went to pick it up, and my father said, No, we only want salvageable things, not some child's toy. I think that was when it struck me, that we were walking into a place where people like me, children, had lived, but didn't anymore. Couldn't. Once inside, my grandmother and father got down to business. Most of the house was ruined, What was any good was so blackened by smoke as to be unsalvageable. There was furniture still, and rugs, and things on the wall, but they were black and abandoned. So they decided to take the banisters from the stairs. Good old wood, my grandmother said. What about upstairs, my father asked. My grandmother attempted to dissuade him. It's black as night up there. Besides, I wouldn't trust those stairs. I'm a good stair tester. I always watch for this in movies where there is a fire and heroes rush in. Do they test the stairs first? If not, the critic in me cries, fake. My father decided that since I was little, I could risk it best. He sent me up the stairs as he and my grandmother worked to dislodge the railings. Call out what you see, he said. Any furniture or such. What I remember is a child's room strewn with toys, most specifically matchboxes which I collected. They lay on their sides and backs on a braided rug, the die-cast metal bright in yellows and blues and greens in the dark, burned house. There were children's clothes in the open closet, singed along all their hymns, an unmade bed. It had happened at night, I remember thinking, when I was older. They were sleeping. In the center of this bed was a small, dark, charred cavity, that went through to the floor I stared at it a child had died in there when we got home my mother called my father an idiot she was livid he arrived with what he thought might be a prize these banisters will make great table legs he announced I chose to remember the matchboxes and the raggedy Andy but what child leaves behind these toys even if slightly blackened Where were the parents, I wondered all that night, and in the nightmares that followed? Had they survived? Out of fire grew narrative. I created for this family a new life. I made it a family like I had wanted, mom and dad and a boy and girl, perfect. The fire was a new beginning, change. What was left behind was done so on purpose. The little boy had grown out of his matchboxes, I imagined, but the toys haunted me, the face of the raggedy Andy on the path outside, his black and shining eyes. The first judgment of my family came from a six-year-old playmate of mine. She was small and blonde, that kind of toe-headed blondness that dissolves with age, and she lived down the road at the end of the block. There were only three girls my age in the whole neighborhood, including me, and she and I played at being friends until we got lost in the wider world of grade school and junior high. We were sitting on my front lawn near the mailbox, pulling up grass. We had just that week begun to ride on the bus together. As we pulled grass up in fistfuls and made a little pile by our knees, she said, "'My mom says you're weird.' Shocked into a sort of mock adulthood, I said, What? You won't be mad, will you? she pleaded. I guaranteed her I wouldn't. Mom and Dad and Jill's Mom and Dad said your family is weird. I began to cry. I don't think you're weird, she said. I think you're fun. Even then, I knew envy. I wanted her blonde, straw-like hair, which she wore down, not my stupid brunette braids, with the bangs my mother cut by strapping plastic tape across them and cutting along its edge. I wanted her father, who spent time outside, and on the few occasions I ever visited her, said things like, what's shakin', bacon, and see you later, alligator. I heard my parents in one ear. Mr. Halls was low-class, had a beer gut, wore workman's clothes, and my playmate in the other. My parents were weird. My father worked behind closed doors inside the house, had a huge ancient Latin dictionary on a wrought iron stand, spoke Spanish on the phone, and drank sherry and ate raw meat in the form of chorizo at five o'clock. Until the day in the yard with my playmate, I thought this was what fathers did. Then I began to catalog and notice. They mowed lawns they drank beer, they played in the yard with their kids, walked around the block with their wives, piled into campers, and, when they went out, wore joke ties or polo shirts, not Phi Beta Kappa keys and tailored vests. The mothers were a different matter, and I loved mine so fiercely that I never wanted to admit to envy there. I did note that my mother seemed more anxious and less concerned with makeup, clothes, and cooking than the other mothers did. I wished my mother were normal, like other moms, smiling and caring, seemingly, only for her family. I saw a movie with my father one night on television, The Stepford Wives. My father loved it. It scared the hell out of me. I, of course, thought my mother was Catherine Ross, the only real woman in a town where every wife was replaced with a perfect automated robot of a wife. I had nightmares for months afterward. I may have wanted my mother to change, but not to die, and never, never to be replaced. When I was little, I worried about losing my mother. She was often hidden behind the locked door of her bedroom. My sister or I would want her attention in the mornings. We would see our father leave her room, and as we approached, he would explain, Your mother has a headache this morning, he might say, or Your mother doesn't feel well. She'll be out in a while. I learned that if I knocked anyway, after my father went downstairs and shut himself up in his study, where we were not allowed to disturb him, that my mother sometimes let me in. I would crawl into bed with her and make up stories or ask her questions. She threw up in those days, and I saw this once when my father hadn't thought to lock the door. When I went inside her bedroom, which had its own bathroom, I could see my father standing in the bathroom doorway with his back to me. I could hear my mother making horrible noises. I rounded the corner in time to see bright red vomits spewing from her mouth into the sink. She saw me staring at her, my eyes hip level with my father, and reflected back to her from the mirror in front of the sink. In her gagging, she pointed me out to my father, who shooed me out of the bedroom and locked the door. They fought later. For Christ's sake, Bud, my mother said, you know well enough to lock the door. My mother's pillows, when I was little, smelled like cherries. It was a sickening sweet smell. It was the same way my rapist smelled on the night of the rape. I would not admit to myself until years later that this was the smell of alcohol. I like the story of how my parents met. My father was working at the Pentagon, a better paper pusher than a soldier. When, in basic training, he and an army buddy were ordered to scale a wall, he broke his partner's nose by stepping on it instead of inside the stirrup of this man's hands. My mother lived with her parents in Bethesda, Maryland, and worked first for National Geographic magazine and then the American Scholar. The two of them were set up on a blind date. They hated each other. My mother thought my father was a pompous ass, and after a double date with the two people who had set them up, They put the experience behind them. But they met again a year later. They didn't hit it off exactly, but this time they didn't hate each other, and my father asked my mother out a second time. Your father was the only one who would take the bus out from the capital and then walk the five miles from the last station to our house, my mother always pointed out. This endeared him to my grandmother, apparently, and eventually my parents wed. By then, my father had a Ph.D. in Spanish literature from Princeton, and my parents moved to Durham, North Carolina, where he held down his first academic job at Duke University. It was there, alone all day and unable to make friends in this new place, that my mother's drinking took a turn. She began drinking secretly. My mother had always been nervous. She never acclimated to her prescribed role as housewife. She would repeatedly tell my sister and me how lucky we were to be in our generation. We believed her. The 50s seemed horrible to us. Her father and mine had convinced her to leave her full-time job by emphasizing that a married woman didn't work. She drank for less than a decade, but long enough for my sister and me to come into the world and have our childhoods long enough for my father to move up the academic ranks by taking promotions that took the two of them and then the four of us to Madison, Wisconsin, Rockville, Maryland, and finally Paoli, Pennsylvania. By 1977 my mother had been sober for 10 years. During this period she began having things we called flaps. Flaps were our name for when mommy went crazy. If my father was in absence, sometimes literally gone to Spain for months. My mother was too much a presence. Her anxiety and panic was infectious, making every moment twice as long and twice as hard when she was under their sway. Unlike normal families, we could not trust that, having left to get food at the local supermarket, we would actually achieve our goal. Two steps into the store, she might begin to have a flap. Grab a cantaloupe or something, she would say, as I got older and thrust a bill into my hand. I'll meet you in the car. She would hunch over during a flap and rapidly rub her breastbone to soothe what she described as her exploding heart. I would rush into the store to buy that cantaloupe and maybe something on sale near the front, wondering all the time, will she make it to the car? Will she be all right? In movies and in life, the burly men in white suits who stand on either side of a mental patient are nondescript and indistinguishable. So in many ways were my sister and I. Mary is absent from many of my memories because my mother and her illness are so dominant. When I remember, oh yeah, Mary was along on that ride, that's exactly how I see her, the other support for our always potentially collapsing mother. Sometimes, Mary and I functioned as a caretaking unit. Mary would husband her to the car, and I would grab the cantaloupe. But I watched my sister develop from a child who thought the world would fall apart to a young adult who resented how the flaps made us different, exciting stares and comments in public. Stop rubbing your tits, she would hiss at my mother. As Mary grew less and less sympathetic, I compensated and became the emotional overlord soothing my mother and condemning my sister. When Mary helped, I was glad to have her there. When she whined and entered her own incipient version of my mother's panic, I shut her out. The only memory I have of my father expressing physical affection for my mother was a brief kiss as we were dropping him off to catch a suburban limo to the airport where he would embark on his annual academic trip to Spain. The reason for this isolated incident could come under the heading of, Let's not have a scene. Simply, it was my prompting, then begging, then whining, that brought on the kiss. By then, I had begun to notice that unlike my parents, other couples touched each other, held hands, and kissed on cheeks. They did this in supermarkets, walking around the block, at school occasions to which parents were invited, and in front of me, in their homes. But it was the kiss my father gave that day upon my urging, that let me know my parents' relationship, if solid, was certainly not passionate. He was, after all, leaving us for a number of months, as he did yearly, and I felt that, with an absence of that length, an expression of love was owed my mother. My mother had gotten out of the car to help my father with his bags and to say goodbye. Mary and I were in the back seat. This was my first time seeing him off on his yearly trip. He was flustered, as he always was. My mother, always nervous, was flustered, too. Sitting in the back seat, I remember I got it into my head that something was not right with the picture in front of me. I started whining, "'Kiss Mom goodbye!' My father said something akin to, "'Now, Alice, that's not necessary.' Surely the result was not what he hoped for. "'Kiss Mom goodbye!' I yelled louder and popped my head out the back window." "'Kiss Mom goodbye!' "'Just do it, Dad,' my sister said bitterly beside me. She was three years older, and maybe, as I imagined later, she knew the score. But if what I wanted was to gain confirmation that my parents really were like the rest of the couples in Spring Mill Farms, and perhaps like that famous TV couple of the time, Mr. and Mrs. Brady, the forced kiss didn't do the job. It opened the door for me, It made me know that in the Siebold house, love was duty. He kissed her on the forehead, the kind of kiss that would fulfill the demand of his child, but nothing else. Many years later, I would find black-and-white photos of my father with daisies in his hair and submerged in water with flowers surrounding him. He was smiling, showing the teeth he hated because they came in helter-skelter and his family hadn't had the money to fix them, but he had been happy enough in these photos not to care. Who took them? Not my mother, this much I know. The box of photos had arrived at our house after my grandmother Siebold died. I searched among the photos for clues. Against my mother's stern warning not to take any of the photos in this box, I tucked one inside the waistband of my skirt. Even then, I felt the absence of something I couldn't then name, and it hurt me for my mother, who I instinctively knew needed it and would, I imagined, flourish under it. I never begged or made a scene over his lack of affection again because I didn't want to encounter that emptiness in their marriage. I soon discovered that only the unconscious touch slipped by inside my house. As a little girl, I would sometimes plan my attack, the goal to be touched. My mother would be sitting at her end of the couch, doing needlepoint or reading a book. For my purposes, it was best if she was reading a book and watching television at the same time. The more distraction, the less chance she would notice my approach. I would take my seat on the far end of the couch and slowly inch my way down to her end, where I would contrive to put my head in her lap. If I made it, she might rest her stitching hand if she was doing needlepoint and casually finger the locks of my hair. I remember the cool feeling of the thimble as it touched my forehead and how, with a thief's awareness, I could tell when she became conscious of her actions. I might encourage her then by saying I had a headache, but even if this bought me a few extra strokes, I knew the jig was up. I debated until I became too old to play such games, whether it was better to remove myself from her or to be pulled reluctantly off her and told to sit up or go read a book. The soft things in my life were our dogs, two sloppy, loving Bassets named Fajo and Belle. One name was that of a Spanish author my father admired, and one, condescendingly for him, a word that the uneducated might recognize. French for beautiful, my father would point out. My father commonly called my sister and me by the dogs' names, and this was a clue as much to who was closest to all of our hearts as it was to how preoccupied with work my father was. Dogs and children were the same to him when he was working. Small things that begged attention and needed to be put out. What the dogs knew was that there were four distinct environments in our house, and they rarely came together. There was my father's study, my mother's bedroom, my sister's bedroom, and wherever throughout the house I might be holed up. So Feho and Belle, and later Rose, had four places to try for attention. Four places where a hand would, distractedly, reach out to fondle their ears or reach down for a good hot spot scratch. They were like comfort caravans, carting their lumbering, drooling selves from room to room. They were our comedians and our glue, for otherwise my father, mother, and sister lived in books. I struggled to be quiet in the house. While the three of them read or worked, I kept myself busy. I experimented with making food in odd ways. I squirreled away jello and made it under my tall four-poster bed. I tried to make rice on the dehydrator in the basement. I mixed my mother's and father's perfumes in little bottles to create new scents. I drew. I climbed boxes up to the crawl space in the basement and sat for hours in the dark cement hole with my knees drawn up. I played histrionic games with Ken and Barbie, where Barbie, by 16, had married, given birth, and gotten divorced from Ken. At the mock trial, where the courthouse was made out of poster board I'd cut up, Barbie gave her reason for divorce. Ken didn't touch. But I would get bored. Hours and hours of finding ways to occupy myself gave way to hatching plots. The Bassets were often my unwitting assistants, Like all dogs, they nosed through the trash and under beds. They carried away trophies, smelly clothes, used socks, unattended food containers, and whatnot. The more they loved it, the harder they fought to keep it, and the thing they loved the most, with an animal passion that makes sense of the phrase, was my mother's discarded maxi pads. Basset hounds and maxi pads are a love marriage complete. No one could tell Feyhoe and Belle that that particular item was not meant for them, they were wedded to it. And oh, the scene, the lovely scene. It wasn't a one-person or two-person job. It was the whole thundering house. The horror of it made my father hysterical and my mother adamant that he get involved in the chase. The sheer thought of it was obscene, maxi pads. The Bassetts and I were happy because it meant everyone came out of their rooms to run and jump and scream. The downstairs of our house was laid out in a kind of circle, and the Bassetts had figured this out. We chased them round and round from front hall to back through family room, kitchen, dining room, and living room. The Bassett assisting, the one sans maxi pad, would bark and bark and cut us off at the pass when we attempted to make a lunge at the lucky one. We got smarter in our tactics, tried to block them with doors or corral them in the corner of a room, but they were wily and they had a clandestine assistant. I let them get by. I false-lunged. I gave my parents and sister misdirection. Back hall, back hall, I would yell, and three hysterical people would run that way. Meanwhile, the Bassetts were happily hiding with their snare underneath the table in the dining room. Eventually, I took matters into my own hands, and when my mother stepped downstairs to the kitchen or was reading outside on the porch, I would lead the most available Bassett into her bedroom and turn my back. Within minutes, Bud, Feho has a cotex. For Christ's sake. Mom, I'd say helpfully, he's tearing it up. Doors burst open, footsteps on stairs and rug, screaming, barking, raucous, joyous scene. Always, though, as these scenes resolved themselves, disgruntled Bassetts going away to lick their paws, My mother, father, and Mary would return to their rooms. I would be in the house at large again, lonely.
3: We will pick up, let's see, chapter three, I reckon. We'll pick up in chapter three for next Thursday, Alice Sebold, Lucky. The number is 720 716 7300 the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, finish up the emails, then we'll get Mo and Dallas, all the other folks who dialed in. Uh, let's see. So this is from chapter two. One of our investors wrote in uh, I looked at mugshots, but I didn't see the man who raped me through my struggle to remain conscious any description of the assailant can't logically be seen as credible, credible. but in a system of racism white supremacy none of that matters eh. Niggers are known to rape he continues I probably would not have picked up on certain things without the foreknowledge of the false conviction The author makes it a point to reinforce that she has been victimized repeatedly up to this point in her life, by her parents, her classmates, and now the black beast. Given what we know, now is it possible that this is at least in part fiction? She has an acknowledged talent in fiction writing. Fascinating read thus far. It is interesting, absolutely. Uh, let's see, uh, folks who dialed in. I know Mo and Dallas says he had uh, more commentary. If you think you have something to share and you didn't get to speak at all, you should go ahead and get your hand up right now. Oh, I see one. Let's see, uh, non-Clemson grad and Missy investors as well. Uh, we missed you all the first time around. Did you have commentary? Um, I did. How's everyone doing this evening? Poorly, right? Poorly.
2: (laughs) Understandable. Um, I did hear the first part of the um the book as well too. I just wasn't able to um, call up for the first part. But um, I did note a couple things that um that the author wrote in her book as you were as was being read. So there was the part where she was getting raped, where she talked about you know where. The rapist was asking for her money. She talked about that she has uh, credit cards, and basically she said she had the credit cards of her mother and sister. I'm like, that's an interesting uh, – well, like you said, you know, people do very interesting things when they're in a um, in a traumatic situation. Um, but, you no, know, you know, I took it as mm. – selling out her brother and sister now in hindsight, you know, like you said a moment ago if you were just reading this story and you didn't know obviously what just happened in the last couple of weeks with the author you would think like oh my god this is a horrible horrible story to hear let alone recollect but now with the hindsight of um, you know what the author has done it just kind of seems like all the things that she put into her book just seem quite trifling to me like, you know, the credit cards with her mother and, you know, giving up the credit cards of her mother and sister. Um, there was a line where she said she tried to talk to him like he was a human. Um, now a couple of years ago, there was a tour that was done by a rape, um, by a rapist and, and her victim. The name of the rapist was a man named Tom Stranger and the woman I think was, um, the, uh, I'm sorry, the man with the rapist I think was Tom Stranger and the woman's name was Thordis Elba. Um, uh, I find it interesting that, you know, where else in the world could you imagine a situation where the rapist and the rape the the rapist and the victim are going on a tour together to talk about this, um, you know, what happened, but also talking as if they're now, you know, reconciled and they're getting along. I mean, could you imagine a non-white person getting that kind of opportunity where a rapist can speak on stage to a whole bunch of people and they still look at the rapist as a human being? Um, the description of the rape sounds like a rape fantasy to me overall, personally. I think she was just trying to, you know, things well she got down. Um, let's see. I think you said it earlier, the part where she talked about her white, pale skin and how she felt ugly. Well, moment, absolutely. Um, while she was getting raped, she was trying to convince herself that the person that was raping her was a good person. Um, that's very interesting internal dialogue. Um, the rapist was um, concerned for her after ra- um, after um, after raping that happened, you know, make sure that she wasn't feeling cold because her clothes were off. Uh, let's see, the fact that he apologized after it was done, and then um, the aftermath. You know, you know, dealing with her uh, her, her, um, her classmates or her uh, college room um, roommates and stuff. Um, getting medication. I think, value from the doctor. And the fact that she decided even after she got the prescription that she wasn't even going to take the value because she saw how her addiction um um treated you know, how addiction with with her mother. Now first I remember when I got my teeth to uh one of my wisdom uh teeth taken out. I remember my aunt at the time specifically saying to me, like, hey, do not take this specific drug because my aunt is a nurse. Um now at the time, this is back when I was, I think in my um, mid twenties, so it is over ten years ago. I had no idea about this opioid epidemic, but um, drugs weren't even my thing, anyways. But I simply listed them on. Didn't think too much about it. And but obviously, as the, the story has continued to go on, clearly you can see the addiction issues that her mother was having. And um, at least in this book, um, the black male classmate that she was a um, didn't want to hug because she, it looked like her rapist. Uh, the when I was in college, this is the kind of stuff I personally just did not understand very well. Um and I even even admit I feel lucky to have made it through college and not gotten into any kind of trouble. That understanding the triflingness that could come just from being around um white people, particularly white females. Um the affidavit that she had to um give to the police officer and the police officer who said, only give me the facts, allowing her not to talk about certain things. Now I'm not sure if anyone's ever did an affidavit, um, I, you know, is your testimony how you perceive events to have gone? The fact that the op- um, I think it's nothing worse than when you're trying to tell your story or how you perceive an event happened, that the person who was writing it down decides of their own volition that they were going to admit certain details or use different words than the words that you use, I think kind of takes away from the story that you're trying to tell and also kind of obfuscates what you are trying to say occur versus what they think you should be allowed to say, and I find that to be very, very um, trifling and attacking. Um, and then as they were um, the part of the book that was talking about them going through the fire, um, the house that was on fire, everything she described about the house, she kept using words like everything was blackened. And ruin just goes to show what she really thinks about uh, well, black people, in my personal opinion. And of course, going back to the mother being an alcoholic, um, it kind of reminded me um, of some of the descriptions in medical apartheid, where some of the white win- white men would get their wives drugged up just so they can have sex with sex with her, or just get along with them. And with that, I will leave my line. Uh.
3: Much obliged, uh, non-Clemson grad. Uh, let me see. I will hush my mouth so that we get the other folks who dialed in with commentary. Uh, other, all the other folks uh, who are with us: Mo in Dallas, retired firefighter; uh, Irie in Louisiana; uh, Henry in Chicago; Fred one thirty-eight. All should be with us. If you have commentary, proceed. Hello. Yes.
6: Okay, yeah, I heard the, the black, 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 black situation when they were in the house too, and I was um curious if she's ever heard of a thesaurus um, I found it interesting that she 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 used um two words that I wasn't sure was necessary or I shouldn't say that i, I was I'm interested why she used these words because they have sexual connotations. And at first I thought I was tripping. So she was like, she said something about positioning herself where her mom would finger her hair. And I was like, okay, you know, I read, it's not that serious finger, you know, her hair, let me run, you know, fingers through her hair. But then she said something about fondling the dog's ears. And I was like, nah, like, Really? And then uh, there's a resonance to, you know, using these sexual or or could be sexual type words, starting with F as well. Um, I I was reminded when I was in high school being taught by those racist suspects that had us read that other book I mentioned, they mentioned to us that F was the most seductive sounding consonant in the English alphabet. I don't know how true it is. That's what they said. But this woman um very low self-esteem. She does not want to be black. She doesn't want to be melanated, I suspect. And the reason why she rejects her her paleness is because she's not blonde. If she was blonde, she she would probably think she was um, you know, Aphrodite or something. Um, and I think that her low self-esteem is stemming from, uh, her internalizing her mother and her father not being, um, you know, intimate with each other, you know, not like, you know, sex, but like kissing each other goodbye, hugs, holding hands and stuff, the stuff she's talking about, because if she's in a reflection of her mother in the literal sense, considering, you know, I look like my mom, most women look like their mom. Then that means her mom is not that attractive to her father. And that's why her father could go over to Europe with ease and go look at the better-looking European women. Probably are melanated because they're in the Mediterranean for months at a time and not want to kiss his wife goodbye. And that's all I wanted to say. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs>
3: Much obliged, Irie. Mm. He was obstinate about that kiss. Uh, other folks with commentary to share? Can I be heard? Mo in Dallas? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you, guys. Um, uh,
0: where am I at on? I'll be brief uh, my add on I didn't want to uh my last comment to uh, believe i mean to to be left in and for anyone to take that. um i would expect uh, a town to get sacked uh for an accusation of sorts um I, I was just um uh more and i probably should have been more clear and i apologize i don't want i don't want that to be you know uh taken that way in this program. I, I was just—I um, was surprised at the lack of reaction at, at some sort of crime, such as this, uh, when history shows that uh, much more damage has happened with—with—with with, with way less proof. That—that um, that was uh, what I was implying. Um, and with that being said, I just uh, one comment because I don't want to drag. I, I just thought it was real odd. To give the dogs access, or you know, to allow the dogs to have access to uh, um, sanitary napkins. That's that's just unclean, and I I, I don't I don't agree with that. Uh, I'm a dog owner. I, I live with the women, um, mother, daughter. My daughter's young. Uh, Grandparent. All of that. We've never like. So maybe that's just a different thing altogether. I just don't. Uh, it didn't. It didn't sit well with me. Me and my line
3: didn't sit well with him. My goodness. Uh, other folks' comments. They wanted to make sure that they get in. Be a responsible dog owner. Can I be hurt? Retired firefighter in Florida
7: yes in the, in the first reading i i did hear the uh the uh negro description and uh what was the what was the year of of uh this crime did i hear nineteen eighty one
3: yes sir that's early 1980s yes
7: sir yeah i was just i was just thinking i, I it, that that description that description of non-white people was kind of outdated by that time. I was just trying to figure that out on why that was still being used in a uh, law enforcement uh, description. I thought it was, you know, interesting in that light that that that, that particular description was still being used because certainly in 1981, uh, as far as what I know, uh, the, that description was uh, extinct on a professional level. Uh, that's all. I was just thinking about that.
3: Hmm. Uh, what would I say? I think evidence might contradict that because I that term stuck out to me. I say Negro now all the time, but well for one as in terms of a professional manner negro was just removed from the u.s census within the last mm, five to ten years like super recent like not 1980 like very recent that they just took it off the census like oh my bad so i mean 1980s like oh yeah i'm sure it's it's still on a lot of forms now for racial classification like i said it was just recently taken off of the census and you still have things like the United Negro College Fund so i mean 40 years ago i don't even think dr king was a holiday uh 40 years ago so it wasn't as popular like absolutely by that time it was african american black it certainly was not popular widely used but i mean oh yeah it was still wide circulation of the word i mean it would be advertisements for the united negro college fund and it was on the census, like I said, you know.
7: Yeah, I, I understand that, but I, I mean, with with police descriptions, uh, uh, job descriptions, uh, I didn't recognize it in no job that I had in the nineteen eighties. <laughs> no job or anything like that, or any type of uh, paperwork where it asks for for my quote unquote race uh, in the eighties. I never did see it at all. And I'm in the I'm in the southern part of this part of the world. Uh, I understand the the Negro College Fund uh, because someone decided not to change the name. <laughs> it still I don't think it still has changed. But I'm talking about from a standpoint of professional description. You know, I worked on a job where you had to put down the description of of, of, the, of a person, uh, even on a report and uh and the same thing with the police and uh so I, I i i never saw it uh in those reports at all police reports as well as uh fire department reports never did see it at all in the 1980s when i started work in 1981
3: definitely a good point it was certainly not uh like i said the popular
7: nomenclature uh, by that point, and african uh, african american didn't even come about come about it didn't come about until something like the i would say the late eighties african american uh, you you would call somebody an African <laughs> in this part of the world and they'd get insulted <laughs> uh, african american as far as they're concerned you know back during that time. Uh, but anyway, that was just my experiences. That's all. Hmm. Much
3: obliged, sir. Uh, other folks had comments that they wanted to make sure they got in. Do you get everybody? May God, everybody. How about that? Got them all. Let me see. I found it fascinating. Well, one, let me back up to the word "fondle." Uh, I think Irie pointed that out, uh, where she was talking about fondling the dog's ear and fingering her hair. Like that's interesting uh, verbiage to use in a book that's focused on sexual trauma and rape. Like, hmm. I said the same thing, and I went to just to look uh, to make sure that this is not me and me having some sort of odd connotations for the word. Uh, the definition for fondle stroke or caress lovingly or erotically so there's some sort of implied uh, sexual nature to the touching generally I mean just the way that people use the term fondle it's generally not uh, some sort of gentle caress of a child or the family pet Uh, frequently it's incorrect touching um, when people talk about uh, fondling someone so I too noted that Uh, I also thought it was peculiar to have this uh, to me. It just seemed like a peculiar deviation to go into all this talk about uh, the fire and her parents being an alcoholic and all that. Like we're in the middle of this uh, rape situation and to have all this backstory like I don't like maybe it's just because we got all the intensity of the rape to begin with and we didn't get any backstory so now we're going to get backstory about her life and how she got to Syracuse and blah blah blah, blah and her parents are alcoholic and her dad wasn't a uh, yeah affectionate uh, and all the rest of it. So I guess we'll get all of that there but I mean jinkies like I don't know, just just the way that the story got presented, it just seemed very uh, disjointed, like I'm all in to the rape thing, like okay are we going back to the police, are they going to investigate, are we getting to the lineup part and now we're going back to her childhood, like oh okay, the rape thing is on hold for the moment, like okay we'll just have to kind of keep that uh, the details in the hopper and get back to that at some point uh, let's see the Make sure I get in before we wrap up my last last few notes here the playmate where she felt judged was this little blonde, I think Iris talked about that too, in her Uh, Alice Sebold's low self-esteem because she's pale and not blonde and then overweight too, like the triple whammy of it, I guess. And then the little blonde girls. Oh, you're weird. Like, oh, man, my uh, self-respect just going down, down, down. The more superior white person doesn't uh, think well of me. Uh, And then she says all this about touch, too, I thought was just fascinating, uh, at least to me. In a book that's about a white woman being raped by a black female, where she talks about needing to be touched and going through all these antics to get her parents to touch her and then being upset because her dad wasn't affectionate with her mom. And then she it's all about this guy raping her and wanting to touch her. And, oh, your white brush. She doesn't even like her her white skin. And he is coming and commenting about her white skin. Like, it just... I will process as we read. This is week one, but that's just something I would also take uh, note of. Anywho, there are lots of rape fantasies within the system of white supremacy, especially white women having fantasies about a black male raping them. Lots of that's an invisible man. Read that way back when. Anyway. We will uh, continue uh, with this one for next week. If you have, I guess, a moment to waste time. Well, I won't say waste time because this would be serious viewing for the book club. So if you have some Netflix time, you can watch Lovely Bones. That's the other book. The book that uh, was really, this book was not popular. Lovely Bones was very popular and made into a movie. That made this book popular, Lovely Bones, which is also about a white girl being raped. Uh, You can watch it on Netflix. I think it was made into a movie in 2006. Uh, so if you want to check it out, see about any comparisons, right, in terms of how that movie book unfolds in comparison to this. Oh, my God. Yeah, I haven't seen it all. But oh, my God. Yeah. Very interesting commentary about Othello and the Moors. And yeah, check that out. and You can kind of compare and contrast as we proceed with this. Anywho, much obliged for the folks who tuned in, hopefully reading this text worthy of your time and energy in the midst of all of the uncertainty, tornadoes, Omicron, and everything else that is happening as 2021 concludes. We'll be here tomorrow for Neutralizing Workplace Racism, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. All of that said, Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, lots of talk about her mom being an alcoholic and maybe the so called black rapist was under the influence. Like, be sober at minimum. You don't want to be questioned, uh, accused of something, and then you're under the influence uh, when it's time to answer questions and respond to racist man, racist woman, racist child, in addition to being sober. If you're out and about, this is not the time to have verbal confrontations with strangers uh... you should be thinking like any of these folks could be kyle rittenhouse ethan crumbly armed and dangerous in fact they might have an entire armed gang at the ready if you did not leave your residence prepared to kill and or die exit call enforcement officials as you are departing the scene Uh, if you're going to be driving be cautious starting to get cold might be snowing or whatever else Uh, you are sober you're buckled up you're not on the cell phone uh, just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with black ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name-calling Thanks all for tuning in. Context of White Supremacy, signing out. Nigga, you so brainwashed.
0: I'm a victim, no brother.
8: Problem.
3: You're a victim.
0: Yeah. Shut I'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>